Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. very pleased to welcome you back to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, when they write your biography, or you write an autobiography or a memoir, are you going to cut out all that David Copperfield crap? (laughs) (laughs) Just skip right to where we are? I don't know. I kind of like the David Copperfield crap. (laughs) Well, you actually would have a great... Yeah. Memoir of your childhood. Oh, man. I think you did a lot of cool stuff. It would be just so pleasant and, and happy. And you seem too mentally uh happy to cut out the david copperfield crap. yeah exactly i'm not i'm not in constant misery <laughs> hopefully you're not just <laughs> percolating over and over and over and contemplating all the phonies in your life and all the phony things they do and why you hate them for that yeah and, and how everyone's if it, so awful and boring and yeah it just kills me if you think about it it just <laughs> <laughs> So uh, okay, well, when you re- when you do your biography, first person narrative, I hope you don't cut out the David Copperfield I, I won't. crap. I'll, I'll keep because it more than anything, I'll be in some of it. Thanks. Oh, you and will. Every, everyone, Play, uh, the big brother role. Yeah, and every, everyone knows everybody's favorite thing is to read things about, about themselves. themselves. <laughs> so true. So true. Unless they're bad things, sometimes those aren't fun to read. Yeah, but uh, I notice if you think about it, you miss even the bad things. Ah, woo. <laughs> little teaser there for everybody listening. Here we go. So yeah, David, what story are we doing today? We're going to do Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's favorite high school assigned reading, <laughs> Yeah, which I never read. Oh, oh until yeah. This. Right. I never actually got assigned Catcher in the Rye in high school, but I, uh, for me, it was Mice, Of Mice and Men. Ah, yes. That was the right. one I remember. And I think also Macbeth. Those were the two. They in- only assigned those two? Well, that was in grade 11 English, oh, and I honestly don't remember what we had to read in grade 12 English. Must have been really in- impactful. Yeah, I, I, my memories of grade 12 English mostly centered around the fact that my teacher would give us like daily quizzes on uh, literary forms of speech. So like, what's an example of irony? What's an example oh. of automatopoeia? What's an example of... Well, I forget the other 10. <laughs> but I'll, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the thing was, if you don't, if you didn't spell it right you wouldn't get the mark. Oh. So I had to learn how to spell onomatopoeia. I still I, don't know how to spell it. I probably got it wrong like seven times, and I would, he's just so mad. He's like, you know I know what it is. He's like, yeah, but can you spell it? <laughs> I was like, Which, you know, you know, attention to detail. Asshole right? teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet Who, you still know how to spell onomatopoeia. Well, I, I, we're or not going to <laughs> throw that on the chopping block right now. I'd say. <laughs> So yeah, uh, we're doing J.D. Salinger's novel, although a short novel, The Catcher in the Rye. I'd say it's like slightly longer than a novella. Yeah, I always figure that it's a novel if it's over 200 pages. Yeah, and it's just over 200 pages. We're not totally sure. It it says in the book flap that it was, uh, the first incident was published in 1945, and then another incident of it was published in 1946, and I'm not exactly sure what incident means in the, the literary world, but then... I think the full publication was 1951. 
but basically 1945 is when this first would have been available to the public. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you're actually about 15 minutes out. Yeah, I, first li- I just fresh finished on your reading mind. it. Yes. So. And for this podcast, it was my second time reading it. I think I read it once probably six or seven years ago. I can't remember exactly, but I had a phase in the early 2010s of uh, just like, okay, my next, my goal over the next couple of years is just to read as many classic pieces of literature as I possibly can get my hands on. So like, that was like my original Dostoevsky phase, yeah. my James Joyce phase, uh, like making my way through all the Dickens novels I hadn't read before. Uh, and then, you know, the American authors, too, and J.D. Salinger being one of them. I, yeah, I guess if there's Rye. a pantheon of American authors, I'd probably put Salinger, Fitzgerald, Hemingway. Well, well you know how we talked about, Twain. I think it might have been when we did Great Gatsby, we talked about how there's like two main tributaries of American literature. Yes. Right? There's the comedic as exemplified by the Mark Twains, the Kurt Vonnegut's. I would even say a little bit like, even though it's more poetry, but even Charles Bukowski. Right. Even yep. is, is like that kind of absurdist, but very just self-referential chuckles that you yeah. get out of, of, out of American literary humor. And then the more serious contemplative side is your Fitzgeralds but and your Salingers. It's also existential, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like American literature is, I mean, even Jack Kerouac, right? Right, On the road, yeah. Where that's in that... That kind of memoir-esque... Steinbeck? Stein, yeah, yeah. I'm personally a big fan of that genre, I would say. Like, easily in the top two, if not the top, of sure. my favorite kind of books to read. So then, first impression, fresh off the press, what do you think of Catcher in the Rye? The writing is, like, extraordinary. Right. Like the, desc- the level of description, the level of... Uh, psychological detail that he puts into this, even the um, the cadence with which he, you know, has internal monologues going, and uh, when they're talking, like I love how his internal mo- monologue is sober at one point, and his ex- like when he speaks, mm-hmm. it's not sober. I know, like it, there, it's cool. It, there's a there's a level of detail and commitment to the craft that I think Salinger actually points out when he's talking about how to construct a composition. Mm-hmm. in the book right, right. And exactly he's like, and so the roommate is talking to our protagonist and he says you know just describe anything a room or something mm-hmm. right just and he, and he decides to describe a baseball glove right but i think salinger's kind of giving a nod to maybe what he believes is good writing which is observational yeah. description sure so yeah actually the prose of catching the rye of all of the writers it reminds me the most of it would be hemingway just yep. because there are Short, simple sentences, and then long, kind of wandering sentences, too. And it's very Hemingway-esque to have the, like, he felt tired. <laughs> right? Yes, and then he the, felt sick. Yeah, and then the dialogue would be like, I suppose so, my dear, or something <laughs> right, like this. Right, like right, a kind right. of, like, Clark Gable, Rhett Butler <laughs> type yeah, of answer. Yeah. And there's definitely that kind of feeling in this, in, in a... I noticed it the most when Holden Caulfield, who is the protagonist, first person narrative we're getting, says, well, always things like, it'll just kill you if you think about it, yeah. right? Or, I'm so tired. <laughs> or when he, when he uses the word, it'll it just kill kills you me. so many, it just kills me, but it, he uses it in different contexts, but often it's like, it's hilarious, Yes, right? Yeah. Like, it or, kills him with laughter. Yeah, he's got this way of like describing, uh, how would I even phrase it? Like, things that are humorous or annoying or frustrating 
he kind of just uses the same pat five phrases for them, right? Yeah. It's just so boring, right? Or, or it, it just, just kills me. It makes me want to cry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like just this kind of um, almost, it's almost a caricature of the era, but I feel like because it's so often in the book, it's clearly so intentional Yeah, that it's making us think in a way about Holden that Salinger's intending for us to slowly start developing a thought about him. And I, I would say, like, before we get into the actual book, my feeling of this is this book kind of has a really slow plot twist to it in the last quarter of the book. Yeah. The first 75% of the book, and the first time I read it, and I even this time, because it's been so long, I didn't really like Holden, and I didn't really like the book. Right? Like, both of it, I'm just like, where is this going? What are we talking about? Why is this a classic novel in the history of literature? And then in the last 25 pages, there's two scenes in specific with the professor and with his sister. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, interesting. This is a very different book than I thought it was going to be. And, And you know how, like, a great plot twist... The ending makes you see everything else a little bit different. Well, there's that one line in particular that I'm sure we'll get to Mm -hmm. where this has happened to me 20 times or so before. Right. And it's like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is actually the key that unlocks the whole book. Sure. Absolutely. There's there's so many... Now that I'm finished it again, I get why it's a classic. Yeah. But... For the first 75% reading it, I'm like, why is this a classic? This just seems like a dopey, self-obsessed adolescence. Adolescent, what do we have to well, learn for from sure, this? For sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, when you're when you're reading through it so many times, you're like, man, you're you're obsessing about like like even the way he thinks about and talks about sex. It's like it's so it's both crude and so immature, mm-hmm. right? It's like the feeling is. As the as the first bit of the book un, unfolds, you're like, hmm, Holton Caulfield, I don't like you, and everything that's going on makes me like you less. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's not just I don't like you, it's traveling in the direction of liking you less. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, you do get this, at least I did, this empathy for him oh, for fairly sure. early on. I think when Jane is going on the date with his roommate, uh, yeah, yeah. right? And you, can, and you just remember just that feeling. And just how it's tormenting mm-hmm. him because he actually really likes Jane. Right. And when the, the and, person you have a crush on is with somebody else. And I love how it describes little memories he has with her that are so personal. Yes. Like the fact that she always ah. keeps her kings at the back row. So right? good, And she yeah. never actually uses them. This is just a little thing. And we've talked about that before, like the little details that show that you're paying attention to someone. Yeah. I think we talked a lot about that in Stand By Me. Yes. Where Chris was a good friend to Gordy by remembering what Gordy loved the most. Yeah. And Holden remembering the little intricacies of Jane's personality. Is it Jane or Jean? Jane. Jane, Jane, Jane. Okay, Jane. and then and then part of the problem is Stadletter calls her Jean. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Stadletter. Yes, which is Stad another like. Jean. That's such a great showing that Stadletter's not paying attention to the little thing, which not even the he big notices so clearly, right? <laughs> yeah. And bothers him so much. All right, so just before we do a plot rundown, uh, I just want to give another big, awesome thank you to all of our listeners out there. We really appreciate all of you, and uh, as we're trying to build a little bit of a really true fiction community online, 
If you could uh, subscribe on any of the major podcasting apps, uh, you'll get notifications whenever we release new downloads, which we try to do on Sundays. And if you feel so inclined to give us a rating or a review, that's actually a super good way for the podcast to move up the charts. So if you get any value out of this podcast, we would be really appreciative if you would do that. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we have a Facebook group, Really True Fiction. You can uh, find us and, and join. As well, uh, if you're interested in communicating with us directly and easily, we have an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We love getting emails and and, uh, communicating with everyone. A shout out to Travis, who did send us an email. Yes. (laughs) And we really appreciated that. Yes, thank you, Travis. Travis. (laughs) Um, What's that line from This Is Water? Uh, The something in you that burns from the stars or something like that. I'm really sorry. I, I didn't research the exact wording, but... You know that I know what I'm talking yeah, about. <laughs> exactly. If you if you do enjoy this and you like you're part of a book club or or you'd like to talk about stories and you have people in your life like that, uh, tell your friends because uh, word of mouth is a really powerful way. And uh, if you are interested in giving a request to Really True Fiction or being a guest, get a hold of us. We're always open to that kind of thing. Uh, David and I really value transparency and openness. So we love to interact with anyone who gets anything out of this show. So this book has very, very sparse plot. Yeah. And it so, takes and it only takes place over like two days. Yeah. Right? It's like two, two and, two and, and a half, half days. Three. Three. I guess it gets to the third day, yeah. Because he goes through the night the first night. Yeah. No, you're right. Two and a half days. I think it's oh. like it starts on a Friday night or or even a Saturday and it ends night. On a Sunday. And it ends on a Monday. No, I'm right, it ends on a right? Monday, yeah. So it is, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the plot such as it exists is is what, David? <laughs> So essentially, Holden uh, goes from... Who's 14? No, 16. 16, right. Uh, and his roommate's 18, so uh, which he never has failed to remind him of, right? Sure, that yeah. he's just a little guy. So he's 16. He's been, to, he's been kind of being sent from kind of boarding school to boarding school by his parents. He doesn't seem to be able to get out of, out of these boarding schools. And he's obsessed with sex. As most seventeen, what a weird most sixteen year old boys are, <laughs> right? Uh, but he's never had sex, mm. uh, and he and he, we we learn this fairly early on because it actually seems like he's a pretty decent person deep down, but but he's so consumed by kind of everything that's bad in the world, like how people treat people, and yet he seems to have this incredible soft spot for people who are kind of looked down upon like Ackley. So there's this this fellow named Ackley, uh, who's one of his roommates. Not roommates, sorry, dorm mates, I guess. And everyone kind of rejects him and won't hang out with him and and won't let him into the, his fraternity. We learn out later. And it's interesting the interactions they have because he doesn't like Ackley. Or there's things he really doesn't like about Ackley. Ackley doesn't brush his teeth. Ackley is covered in pimples. And like the description of how you just you mm-hmm. feel you're supposed to be a little bit disgusted. You're, by you're this disgusted person. and turned off by like that he pe- picks his pimples and things like this. Like it's, there's some grossness to it, right? And yet, he, you come to discover that actually he really does like Ackley. And what he, one of the things he likes about Ackley is that other people don't like Ackley, and he he has this tendency to kind of, I mean, and this is the title of the book, is there's people running towards a cliff. And he, his job is to stop them from yeah. running. Met- metaphorically. Metaphorically, yeah. And and he kind of that's what he wants his, his life to be, is stopping people 
from doing these things. Uh, so basically, he gets kicked out of school. He or not kicked out. He like leaves just before he's supposed to leave because he's getting kicked out. Yes. Or right. did he quit? No, no, he was kicked out because okay. he failed five of his six classes. <laughs> right. except English. Uh, except English. And he decides that he's going to leave early because of this emotional trauma he goes through when a girl that he really likes is going on a date with uh, his roommate who he likes, I guess, but who he knows is a player and is like constantly, you know, using women. Yeah, he's like a he's his his roommate Stadletter is like a bigger guy, like muscular. And he's, and he's like sporty. Yeah, he's like he's a jock. On the basketball he's team a jock because his basketball coach lends him his car when he wants it. Mm-hmm. And he's like a relatively good-hearted jock who might be a bit of a meathead at the same time. And also, you know, seems to like to you know have fun with women, and this really bothers uh, Holden. So the end result is that he punches him and then gets beat up and he's covered in blood and he's just like, I've had enough of this, essentially. And so he leaves and he gets on a train and he goes to New York, which is where he's from, obviously where he feels the most comfortable. But he doesn't want to go home because he doesn't want to admit to his parents that he's, you know, being kicked out of another yet another boarding school. And so he goes from kind of a couple of hotels, sleeps one night in Union Station slightly. Uh, he goes to stay at a professor's, one of, or I guess one of his teacher's homes for an evening, or try, starts to sleep an evening, actually sneaks into his parents' house to see his sister. And these are all kind of the, uh, goes to a few bars. And these are all the contexts in which we basically get his inner monologue. There isn't any kind of plot to no. this. We're essentially just stream of consciousness experience with him doing kind of out of the ordinary things for a 16 year old to be doing but not weird things. and i don't know if they were out of the ordinary in that time period that's the other thing. for a 16 year old though i don't know right like right um, he's just wandering around it New doesn't York. seem from the like he's underage but i don't think being underage has is the, the same, same stigma thing. yeah <laughs> right because it doesn't appear that people seem to care that much well, right? and, well and people ask him kind of informally hey how old are you anyway and he'll be like i'm 22 yeah or i'm 25 right and he's six foot something he tells okay, us so right. um he looks like he's bigger or older i guess uh and, and essentially what we're doing is we're going through um kind of his it, we're, we're we're stuck in his inner monologue so this is mm-hmm. literally his self-talk that we get pretty much through the whole book and we find out early he's a compulsive liar yes yes so he tells us he's a compulsive liar but we get his inner monologue through the through the whole thing, which is interesting, I find, and I love just from a literary perspective, because we're stuck in his head. Mm. Like we don't actually know the truth. We only know what he's telling yeah, us. His perception. We, yeah, his perception of reality. And uh, I guess, I mean, if you're thinking about it as a hero's journey... Sure. The the you know the climax of this is his love for his little sister. Yeah, I mean, in broader strokes, he kind of has these this really deep soft spot for all of his siblings. Yes. And one of his siblings has passed away. Uh, I can't Allie. Remember, Allie. I can't remember. I guess it was a younger brother. Right. Yes, so that's brother. very sad because oh, there's a beautiful scene that we can mm-hmm. get to later. So his older brother is a writer for Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> his younger brother has passed away, and his younger sister Phoebe is kind of his. Um, uh, what would be a right analogy? Like she's like the center of gravity 
for him. Yeah, like yeah, she would be like the his stabilizing the force. thing that he cares about most in the world. Yeah. It seems because he likes his brother DB is what he calls mm-hmm. him. But he thinks but, he's wasting his time in but Hollywood. But yeah, he does, and but he, he like he loves him, and, and he has a lot of like what I love about this book is it's so how you would think about something as a person, right? So, like, yeah. memories just pop in, mm-hmm. and he just thinks about them. Yeah. Or describes them, rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And kind of, like, one thing that I really enjoyed about how this book is set up is that there's, like, 25 or 26 chapters, and it's not a perfect parallel for one chapter, one new character, but for the most part, every chapter is kind of like its own little episode of a TV show with Holden and some character in the book. Right. So yes. there's, like, this weird either interaction or conversation, and some of the characters come in and out through a few of the different chapters, but, like, we do have a chapter where it's basically just Holden and Ackley talking. Yes. And then we have another chapter where it's basically just Holden and Stadletter talking. And then as time goes on, there's like a chapter with Holden and a mother on the train of someone who goes to the school just talking. Or yeah, and, and a couple nuns, yes. like his interaction with a couple nuns, uh, his interaction with a prostitute, yeah, his interaction yeah. with the pimp of the prostitute, the interaction with uh, a, a couple of the girls on the dance floor in the in the lobby of the hotel. His yeah. interaction with like lots of other people, right? You're right. I never thought about it, but it is kind of broken up. Like that it's way. weirdly like a TV show in that way, almost yeah. where it's like there's a TV show, comedians riding in cars getting coffee, and every episode Jerry Seinfeld picks up some famous funny and they just person. Talk, yeah, yeah. So there's like the episode with Jim. Uh, Jim Carrey and Jerry Seinfeld. There's an episode with, you know, Ricky Gervais and, and Seinfeld. And they're just driving around, talking about comedy, getting coffee, you know? And it's like, Catcher in the Rye kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Without, like, the comedy exactly. But it's like, most of the interaction that Holden has in the book is one-on-one. Yes. Right? Uh, he goes on that date with uh, Sally, Sally. Right? Yeah. So he's got all of these kind of one-on-one interactions, even in a group. And so we're... We're seeing how Holden is interacting with a swath of different types of people in his life. And at the same time, I think the genius is we're getting, in one sense, the pros of like what is objectively happening, yeah. but also Holden's perception of what's happening. And like sometimes it lines up, it would seem objectively, and sometimes it diverges very much objectively, right? And Holden weirdly kind of knows when he's <laughs> veering off into his own perception and not probably what's happening, but he just doesn't quite have the wherewithal yet to care about that and not yeah. let it wash him over, Yeah, right? So he's weirdly got the intellect to know that he's fucking up in his perception of things, but it's just still too emotionally satisfying to be in that poor me place. Yeah, and he, for and he spends a lot of time in, in the, the poor, poor me place. Yeah, and I guess what I meant earlier with the slow-moving plot twist is that the last two interactions he has, one with the professor, Mr. Antolini, and his wife, but mostly him, and then his sister, Phoebe, are so different from the rest of the interactions he's had in the rest of the book that they're kind of the little things that seem to turn him back into a more positive trajectory in his life. Like, after he spends time with Phoebe, he doesn't want to move away to Colorado. He doesn't want to just run away. Well, at the, and, yeah, at the very end. At the there, very yes, end, right? Yes, like, yes. the very end of the book, his attitude seems to have shifted away from all of the negative things he's planning for his future out of spite and anger and resentment into a kind of more like, well, if I've got this awesome little kid who looks up to me, I maybe need to be not quite as resentful. And especially and when she starts crying. Exactly, and right? Like, and says so she wants to go with him. Yeah, and so those last two interactions, I think the kind of payoff of the end of the book to me and why I like it is that he's like spent so much time in this negative spiral 
personally and internally, right? Just like, oh, minus 10, minus 20, minus 50, minus 1,000 of maturity and self-awareness. And by the end, he's like starting to kind of make the curve back up to like, oh, we were at a minus 1,000, but after spending time with Antolini and Phoebe, we're back up at maybe minus 850, but at least we're trending in the right direction. Yeah, and the end is like hopeful, but, you know, skeptical, mm-hmm. right? And I guess I kind of like the realistic nature of that potentially, especially in adolescence where oh, this book so is like, much that... I think the reason it's a classic is because the turmoil of adolescence is so masterfully Mm -hmm. recorded on these pages. And there's a couple of aspects of it that I think are not necessarily novel or unique to us now in 2020, but when this book would have been published in 1945, like there's a whole section on um, kind of anti-bullying and suicide and suicide, right? That I probably wouldn't have been as talked about or easy to talk about in 1945, right? So I think part of this, is historical in the sense that it probably is a bit of a trailblazer in culture for a couple tougher issues. Well, when Phoebe asks him, like, what are two things that you like? Like, do you like anything? Because she's uh, such a such an insightful 10-year-old with the insight that right. only a 10-year-old could have, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... I she's even very think, precocious. I even think of times my, my little sister has said things like that to me, right? She's 10 years younger than me. And, like, sometimes she would say things and be like, oh, wow, like... Mm-hmm. You, you are very insightful. Yeah, because 10-year-olds are like at the stage of life where they have enough cognitive ability to think abstractly a little bit. And they're also very observant. But they're honest. Yes, right? and they're observant. They're right? observant, like, honest, and are beginning to understand abstract thinking a bit so that they can take themselves out of the current context and provide counterfactuals, right? Like Phoebe provides counterfactuals to Holden that he hasn't considered yet, and that kind of makes him angry, but then he has to think about those things, right? And that's part of the thing is like the whole movie, the inner dialogue, none of the other characters hold the movie, you mean book. Sorry, I always do that. I always do that. I get going, I get going, I get going. (laughs) The whole time, one of the things you'll notice is nobody, everybody else that Holden seems to be so in conversation with are probably just as self-obsessed as he is. So what they do is they don't provide him with counterfactuals other than just like kind of the basic, like, well, if you get kicked out of school, your life is fucked. What are you going to do? Right. Right. Like, Phoebe, like Mr. Spencer. Yeah. His, his, do- that dialogue is so right? weird. It's and, like, but Phoebe is the one and Antolini are the ones who actually start to give a little bit more counterfactual context. It's like, well, even this, what about this? Do you really want to do that? And it's like they actually seem to care about him in a way that no one else does. Just like, you know the difference between people who you know you just play a role for their life? They they don't dislike you, but you're just kind of around. Right. And, and you play, you, you, you're like the Shakespearean, you have a role, you play a, you play a role in their life, you're on the stage, and then you're off the stage of their life. Whereas right. other people who you love and love you actually think about you when you're not around. True. Right? True. And... All of the characters would only think about Holden when he's around for most of the book. And then, except at the end, the last two would think about him when he's not there. Yeah. And obviously, Antolini has a bit of a weirder yeah, thing well, that's that we'll, something we can we get, get into, into later. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's a long preamble. But, I mean... Well, I mean, that, we've kind of plot summaried it, too. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this book is not one you read because you want an adventure story. No. This is a deep dive into the human psyche. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that's... The best authors of this genre are, I would argue, American. And seem, this is what's so great about this this type of book, is that it seems shallow 
until you really start unpacking it. Yeah. Every kind of like, they seem like vignettes because he's, he's actually like physically in different places when he's having all of these interactions with different characters. But they, because we have one person's mo- internal monologue, they get connected over time, right? Like it's like, you know, I imagine as a scientist, this is very thrilling where you collect all this data and it's just raw data. And the process of beginning to find connections between the data is really like, oh man, if this connects to this, that could mean this theory is true, right? right? right. If this, but if it doesn't, maybe we have to think about it this way, right? And there's just kind of like that feeling I get when I'm with Catcher in the Rye, where it's like, oh man, that conversation he had with Stadletter, how does it relate to that conversation he had with Mrs. Morrow, Yeah. right? And, and once you start doing that, you're like, oh man, this is a little bit deeper than I thought it, it was on first Well, and reading. that's the beauty of it is nothing is kind of on the nose in this book. I think that's another reason it's a classic. Like what we're being told isn't what's happening, right? Where mm-hmm. what's happening is kind of the turmoil of this youthful soul wrestling with the insecurities that he can't, that he doesn't even realize he's dealing with. Yeah because he's projecting all of his insecurity onto his hatred of others. Even how he describes those three women at the bar that he mm-hmm. ends up dancing with, like they're, how they're so stupid and cowish and, and like ugly. boring and ugly. But what else do I have to do? Right. And, and <laughs> I'm like, bored anyway. And yet then he describes really enjoying dancing with one of them. Mm-hmm. But, but she's so they're so consumed with celebrity watching right. and like the things they want that they're not paying attention to him. What is actually happening here? Well, this is, this is someone who's desperate for attention, Mm -hmm. i.e. him, not getting it and describing it to us. But instead, the description is actually just of him projecting these horrible things onto these women. And his go-to at those times is always to just tell lies. Right. Right? Like, he always, like, oh, I saw this famous person. You just missed them. You just missed them. But then the funny part is, and then she goes back and says, oh, I got a glimpse of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But because, but like, he's only doing that to become the center of attention even for a second again right where he's just so insecure in some form that he can't even recognize in himself and yeah like so much of this book is reminiscent of the insecurity of adolescence which is obviously the intention of salinger and yet how you can grow out of that so i'm i think back to my own life of how so many things I still care a lot about the same things I did when I was 16 and 18 and 21, but I, I manifest how I care about them in such different ways. And the concept of the bleeding heart is not an accidental one, right? No. Like it's like the, the bleeding heart of youth, right? Like, yeah. and you think about like the kind of music that is really, that is formative to you when you're 16 and 17 and 18. And just, it's for me, it was so passionate and like, yeah. so hard on the sleeve kind of thing. And I, I still, feel that way when I'm around people I care about and trust but I'm a little bit more guarded around strangers because they don't care like I do about that kind of stuff right which he's learning about a lot of people in his life don't care about the things he cares about and so anyway I guess we're already talking about Holden but I think just for context the the notes I made about his personality that I think are really important to notice is that he's always he always seems to be noticing what he doesn't like in other people. Yes, right. Like this is well, what I mean by projection. Every right? single character. Yeah, and it's the, the weird thing is it's not like he's wrong. No, he's <laughs> right? a very insightful he's, and perceptive person. The things he doesn't like about Ackley, I wouldn't like about Ackley. No. The things yeah. he doesn't like about Stadletter, I wouldn't like about Stadletter or that type of person, right? Or even like those three women in the bar. Yeah. The things he doesn't like about them, I'd be like, yeah, I've I've come across that kind of person as well in my life and I don't like them. The thing is he 
he did, he just leaves it there. So right? he's at the piano bar, remember? And the friend of D or the person who dated DB for a while comes up, and she's with her new boyfriend, and she says hello to him, and he's like, "I know mm-hmm. why she's saying hello to me. She's saying hello to me because she hopes that I will mention her to my brother, who works for Hollywood, so that maybe she gets some sort of in in Hollywood." Yeah, or 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 just. I mean, this happens all the time, but, like, people sometimes just want to come up in another person's mind just to remind mm-hmm. the other person that they exist, right? And I think that's a big part of what's happening here. Yeah. So that's a huge part of his character. Another one, he, like, he, the one I noticed the most is all the lies he tells to Mrs. Morrow, Ernie Morrow's mom, who is a classmate of his. So he's a compulsive liar. He's always noticing the negative things he doesn't like in, in um other people it appears that so many of his escapades are just so he doesn't have to be alone with his thoughts because that's his like most lonely place yes is when he's alone with his thoughts he doesn't like being alone at all he's very revengeful he dreams of revenge a lot especially on maurice the pimp he's always dreaming of something great elsewhere like in a different time in a different place things will be better but he has no like way to get there and he hates phonies he's always telling us about how much he hates phony people and so like that's kind of like he's this like Self-obsessed, resentful. But he also hates that he self-pitying. Feels like he feels like a phony. Yeah, but he, yeah, and so again, like you're right, he's projecting. So I think all of that is good context for. I wrote some specific scenes that I thought are interesting with that kind of character in mind, right. and then anyone's you remember will reference too. But so on page thirteen, there's that one conversation he's having with Spencer, who's a teacher, I guess. Yeah, one of his teachers, one of his yeah. teachers. And an old teacher, like an the old guy's teacher. older. And I thought the funniest observation that Salinger makes in that scene is that while Spencer's lecturing him, uh, Holden starts thinking about the ducks yeah. in Central Park Pond and where they go. <laughs> like, where do they go? And so basically, he's just having this reverie while he's being lectured. And I, I just wrote down, like, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> I really struggle. When you're being lectured? Not lectured. When someone's talking, me to, talking to me about something I don't actually care about. Uh. I always drift. I'm always thinking. And so I, more than I care to admit, although I'm admitting it, I am responding back to someone when they're done talking like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh okay. Oh, mm. yeah. Or like a nod of the head, right? And I know it's not respectful. And yet I so empathized with Holden in that moment of, I don't care what you're saying at all. You're boring I'm me. i think about something else. And without like conscious choice my mind drifts to something because there's no there's no contextual reason he would suddenly start thinking Mm -hmm. about the duck but he's curious right he's like it's it's in the form of a question like where do the ducks go in the winter i don't know yeah (laughs) right and uh like does that ever happen to you oh yeah yeah unfortunately um i was even thinking. sorry what'd you say no (laughs) just joking (laughs) um one of the times it happened happens a lot and thankfully not a lot of people who would talk to me on the phone will be listening to this but i've ha- if i don't find a conversation interesting on the phone i'll often just you know put it on speakerphone mm-hmm. and like flip through messages or, or right. social media or something and you know not pay attention mm-hmm. to to what the other person is saying and then respond with a yeah and i don't actually know what they're saying and i don't i, 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 notice, I don't like that i know but i notice it also happens a lot on group zoom calls Right. People checking yeah. their phone on group Zoom calls and stuff like that, which we're going to. Well, actually, it's interesting because this is one of the things that uh, David Foster Wallace talks about in right. Infinite Jest, right? Is how when he talks about the evolution from phone to video calls and how everyone got off video calls mm, and went right, back to right, phone right. calls because they weren't paying attention <laughs> and they didn't want to be caught not yeah, paying yeah, attention. Yeah. And I, I actually think that it's a bad thing. 
yeah. to do that. Because like being present with a person who's you're with mm-hmm. like is so important mm-hmm. to making them feel cared about, appreciated, loved, whatever you want to call it. Sure. But not only that, being present in any given moment actually allows for an appreciation, a, an external appreciation of the now mm-hmm. that is not possible when you're daydreaming. Absolutely. Like, I, I actually think of daydreaming. I don't think curiosity is a bad thing at all, mm. but I think of daydreaming as time wasting in a in a very unique and nefarious way because it happens completely unconsciously unconsciously Mm -hmm. it's it's a lack of awareness it's it's not you know keeping your mental Mm -hmm. guards up well i definitely have been working on noticing when i'm drifting yeah and coming back and admitting to a piece of information i didn't catch because i drifted off or I, i zoned out or something like and that's a little bit embarrassing to admit in the moment but it is it's cognitive work to pay attention and so i agree it's something to work on always for yourself. To play the other side of the coin, though, or or advocate for the devil a little bit, Mr. Spencer, the teacher in this, he's being didactic, right? Yeah. He's just lecturing at Holden. And I think it's useful if you are the person talking to someone to pay attention to if you are holding their interest or not. If you're getting through to them. If you're yeah. getting through to them. As a teacher, if you're not, you might want to change your tactics, right? Like that's probably pedagogy 101 is, okay, this method of education isn't working. Maybe I must try another. And I, best teachers I've ever had are the ones who are adaptable to different types of students. Right. And I yeah. try to be that way for the kids at work. Like some of my approaches of helping them learn something work. And some of them, like some kids, I can just tell them the rules and they'll learn. Yeah. Some kids I need to physically show how they have to run to play the game, right? Right. Some pe- Some kids learn just auditorily some learn uh, what is it kinesthetically those, those kind of things some of them i can just um r- let them read the rules and they'll get it kind of thing and so i'm hyper aware of when i feel like i'm not holding someone's interest organically right and if i'm not i apologize and say what sh- what what other thing could we talk about right not because i'm like sorry in a deep sense but because i understand what it's like to not care about what someone else is talking about and i feel like a higher plane of of communicative interaction between people is understanding when whatever it is that i'm currently talking about or currently invested in is of no interest to the person i'm in in that moment and i think that's actually where a lot of the problems come in in this book between holden and whoever he's talking to is that they're not on the same page at all about what they care about. Almost ever. Yeah. And that obviously weighs on his soul quite a bit. Right. And presumably it weighs on the other people's souls quite a bit, even though because it's Holden's inner monologue, we're getting everyone just comes across as stupid and boring. Yes. (laughs) Even though he's probably the same way to them. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, he, I mean, even you have that conversation with the the older guy who's going to Columbia. I uh, apologize, can't his name has escaped me. They're at the bar and they're having a drink, and they only it's a very right. short scene. Oh yeah, what was his name? Um. Anyway, it's not really important because the someone he knew from before, someone that was at a school that he went to, is supposed to be kind of like his big brother sort of situation at the school, and he just keeps asking him about sex. Mm-hmm. Like he just. Like yeah, just he's just up obsessed as, with it. Just uh, because this is someone who, you know, apparently given him kind of like lectures on mm. sexual sexuality and things like that. And the guy's like, this is boring me. Like, you're, like I don't <laughs> yeah. want to talk about this. Do you want to talk about something else? And then eventually he he just keeps 
on Bringing the same it topic. Back up, yeah. And so he just leaves. Yeah. Right? This is obviously someone that he kind of looks up to. And he wants to seem like he's also kind of suave. Yeah. And in and, the know. And the guy's like just not having any of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So he's he is clearly boring to yeah. other people. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 We're, uh, <laughs> well, I'm being boring by just repeating your points then, <laughs> but I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> so I'm in, Emphasize it. Uh, what is it? Uh, you know, you know how a gentleman is only ever rude on purpose? Yes. Right. A, uh, a comedian is only ever boring on purpose. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so another scene that was really affecting to me is when Stadletter beats the shit out of him. Okay. And he keeps calling him a moron. Yeah, he just like, can't like stop. That's his moment of strength, right? Yeah. Where he's like, "Well, maybe." I'm... And that's interesting. How cause... did that scene affect you? I, I guess um, is the question. Because the whole time I'm thinking to myself, "Holden, shut the fuck up!" Right? And, Why are you getting in, beat? Yeah. And in his head, it's even like, oh, "I shouldn't do this," but I just can't help but it. I can't, yeah. So I guess it's like a breaking point for. But it's interesting. I think it's James. Is it James Constable, the guy who who throws himself out? James the Castle. Sorry, James Castle. Thank mm-hmm. you. So James, I have a friend named James Constable. That's why I came uh, yeah, yeah. So James Castle, he he sees it as admirable that James Castle won't take back an insult that he made. Right. And that's why ah, he's getting the crap point. beat out of him. And it seems that that's something he he knows he's not strong. He knows he's not a tough guy. But he he's like, well, at least I'm not. I'm going to say the truth. Right, of course, he's not the truth in love. This isn't this isn't an attempt to you know make the world a better place. A truth for this in spite. Truth. It's like his only method of being superior to others mm. is being more insightful than them about their own intelligence. Yeah, or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Yeah, you know what? And it and it again. This scene, maybe this is where it is. Like it reminded me of things I did when I was a teenager. Right. Not like to the extent of being lippy to someone until they beat the shit out of me. But you were pretty lippy. I do. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely <laughs> was. But I was also, and this happened more when I was drinking in my in teenage years. But I would like just grasp on to a particular interpretation of something and just avoid all reasons to the contrary and just like I, I have. You'd these run me- with it, kind of. Thing. Yeah, I'd run with it. I'd ha- I have these memories of my first year of university of just like locking myself in my room avoiding friends who wanted me to go hang out and just being like you didn't do this thing the way i wanted you to do it so ergo fuck you you don't understand me oh interesting right and interesting yeah and i definitely and i had this one um really harsh moment where i would i just got so angry at my parents when i was like 18 for something and i just i smoked my head on the bookshelf just to like show them how angry i was and show and show them that I was unstable in a sense, right? Like the strictures they were putting on me were so unbearable that I wanted to, like the only outlet was physical pain, basically. (laughs) Yeah. I remember. And so I I have that feeling of now at my age, I'm looking back, why the hell did I do that? (laughs) Like it was so (laughs) stupid and nothing got accomplished. Yeah. But I empathized with the fact that, oh, Holden just couldn't shut up. About yeah, I remember like, a moron. being so upset. I must have been 14 or 15. Maybe I was 16, but I was mm. just so angry with my dad about something. And I don't even remember what it was. Like, I have no recollection right. of that. But I remember saying that, like, I'm going to destroy this family. Like, and, and it's like a horrifyingly <laughs> stupid. I never, and I would never do that. But it's like my anger 
took over my reason and I and I said something so hurtful. Mm-hmm. And like obviously I have great parents and they've never held any of these yeah. idiocies against me. But I, I think back to those to just the turmoil of being a teenager. Mm. And it's so well captured in Holden. Yeah. Right? Like like the pendulum like swings the, so hard. The pendulum so fast. Of, yeah, the pendulum swings of emotion. Like he's in love with Sally and like telling her he loves her and then he you know he can't live without her and then like and then I don't know why I'm lying to her like this yeah you're you're a pain in the ass to me like he just he's 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 erratic Mm, yes I remember being erratic yeah absolutely and when you're in that place you don't feel like you're erratic no like you feel like no this is like this is who I am you feel like you don't get me yeah you other person And and I re, like reinforced that in my life with a lot of the music I would listen to, where it was like, uh, you know, a lot of it is meaningful at the time, but it was like so, emo songs like, you don't understand what I'm going through, like stuff <laughs> yeah, like that kind yeah. of motif is uh, the essential one. In, I'm in so the, glad we're not there the anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I don't true, miss that at all. I don't miss it other than... I'm glad it happened to me because it gives me a lot more sympathy and empathy for young people around in the oh, world okay, now, yeah, right? Yeah. In, in the sense that I actually know how better to talk to. I mean, I don't interact with many teenagers at work, but there are some teen programs we do. And, and there'll be times when they're going through stuff or tough stuff that I can talk to them about in a little bit more of an empathetic manner because right. of the intensity of my emotions as an adolescent. And I think that's actually how you redeem yourself for them. Right. right. Like, yeah. <laughs> learning the lessons from those failures. And then yeah. helping other people going through them in their stage of life, you know? And I actually, um, that's what I consider like a, a major component of my job. Like I feel like I have a cosmic duty to help out young people in the world because yeah. I had so many good adults in my life. Who are helping you. Out, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Oh, I just so. think about parents of teenagers, and, and they're just saints, mm. like like little gremlins running around, <laughs> being just like emotional. Like it's just so. And what I like is it doesn't. It's such a holistic and totalistic understanding of the teenage mind, mm. because there's so much good in Holden too. I know, I know. And like he, he, there's there's love, and there's you know looking out for the weak and the broken, and like the and really insightfully understanding the evil in the world mm-hmm. and Absolutely. yet it's all tied up in this myopic emotional swings of stupidity and mm-hmm. and like being consumed by base biology yeah like a lot it feels like this is a snapshot of a young person having all of this like angst in terms of wanting to make the world better somehow but being so bad at knowing how to do it and just fucking up over and over and over in their pursuit of trying to find a better path, you know? Yeah, and, but is he really pursuing a better path or is he just like kind of like hedonistic at this point? I think that he is, what's that song? Looking for love in all the wrong places, yeah, right? Yeah. Like He's looking for that nugget of the person that he wants to be as the catcher in the rye in all of these different places in life that are easier to get to. And so he hopes that like, he's hoping he can get the value without the work, right? Like he's just looking for that value everywhere, which is such an adolescent thing to do. Like the silver bullet. Exactly. The thing that will fix everything. And then when it's not working out in every single circumstance, he's just getting sarcastic and mean about it and dishonest. 
And you're like, well, there's another uh, like youthful way, which again is why I love the end of the book. But anyway, okay, so here's another line he has from page 52 that I wanted to see what you thought about this psychology. So this is a, a quote. He says, almost any time someone buys me a present, it ends up making me sad. Oof. Now, what did you think about that? What do you think he meant there? Wow. Oof. I didn't, didn't remember that line, but now that you've brought it back up, mm-hmm. I, I love it. I mean, I think it says a lot about him. Because mm-hmm. he's not willing to receive things from people. Yeah. Because he doesn't actually think he's worth it. Mm-hmm. And I've been there. But also, one of the worst things about receiving presents is to receive a present that you don't actually want. Mm. And did I ever tell you this story about the skis? I think I did. Maybe, but do it again anyway. So... <laughs> When I was, uh, I think I must have been like 14, 15, and Mm. my parents had had bought all of us a gift, and they'd hidden it in the shop, because we live on an acreage, or we lived on an acreage, they still do, and they wouldn't let us go in the shop, and so it built up this idea of what was going to be in the shop in my mind. Was it a horse? Was it quads? Was it a skidoo? Like, I was so excited for this present, and I remember the the crushing disappointment of cross-country skis. <laughs> now, I'm really glad that they got us cross-country right. skis. It was an incredible thing for them to do. But because, and I've talked, I think I have mentioned this before in the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, because, I'm reminded. Because what it, you know, it, it the, the difference between expectation and reality is what brought me misery and also ruined a really great thing that someone else was doing for me. So mm-hmm. that's one way you can ruin a present. Sure. But there's another way. And it's actually, it's when the person doesn't really know you, but they feel obligated to get you something. Mm -hmm. And so they get you something and it hurts because Mm -hmm. it's like, I didn't even, like, this isn't, does this person not know me? Well, it's not a gift. Yeah. It's an obligation. Right. You know that little joke I always make of, uh, if it was obligatory, it wouldn't be a gift. Yeah. You know, I say that about, you know, whenever someone, hey, thanks Luke for doing that for me. You know, you didn't have to. Like, and I was like, well, if I had to, I wouldn't. <laughs> or if I had to, I would, but it wouldn't be worth thanking me. Yeah, for. yeah. Or, or if I had to and I did it, I would expect some money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what reciprocity right. is. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's two ways. I don't know if this is a different or like a third interpretation, but I think it might hold true for how we're talking a little bit about Holden's psychology is that I think there's a part of Holden that also doesn't feel like he's worth someone doing something kind to him for. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he he feels worthless. He, there's an element of him that's like, I'm not actually worth your sincere kindness because I actually know what I'm like. Yeah, and like, but he also seems to think that everyone else knows what he's like. And yet he's pulling the wool over certain people's eyes sure but a gift breaks that fiction so for example i think there is a social fiction between people who don't like each other let's say or who do right so it's like if i if i think how would i phrase it if i have a perception that i'm not worth liking and i think you don't like me right we can just kind of go by without talking about it which is kind of what his relationship is like with both Ackley and Stadletter. True. Right? They don't really... Except for Ackley does seem to kind of like him. He, or or maybe not like him, but he's got proximity to him. So he sure. kind of wanders into his room and sure. talks to him. But I think also Holden doesn't really care if Ackley right. likes him. True. At least in the moment, right? So there's like this kind of fiction of like, I don't talk about the fact that I'm not worth your attention. And you don't bring up the fact that I'm not worth your attention. And I passively and unconsciously get by. 
But what a gift does is it breaks that fiction and says, no, actually, I do like you. If if it's sincere, right? Well, then you're facing right. If it's a sincere gift, you're like, shit, now I have to make conscious the idea that I don't like myself. And, and how... And so the, the way to... So re- I'm impostering yeah. myself to you. So there's that element of it too, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a tragic but incredibly common reality, I think, that people don't feel mm-hmm. worthy of love. Yeah. And if you don't feel worthy of love when someone is showing you affection, <laughs> i.e. through a gift, it feels like it's a slap in the face right. to reality, right? It's like, oh, no, you're you're deceived about my real value, which is like so tragic, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, I mean, we, we, I want to go into this more in a few other, I don't know if this, maybe this is the right time yeah, to say yeah. it, but like, it's so interesting. Sally obviously really likes Holden. Yeah, weirdly. Weirdly. And she's really attractive. And the impression that you get, <laughs> I can't actually, it's funny, you never get a description really of him physically except for that he's tall. Yeah, and it's weird, like, when the people like each other in this book, like, romantically, it's kind of both casual and deep at the same time, you know? And, well, and yet, it's so childish. His, like, <laughs> yeah. Sally's affection for him and also his interest in her is so childish. And one of the aspects of the childishness of it is that she's, when when they are talking to each other, she's talking about the other guys that like her. Mm. Trying to, like, be like, oh, I want him to be jealous. <laughs> but he just really doesn't care. Yeah. Which She's is, playing that game. Which is part of why she's so interested in him. Because she's like, oh, he must. There's something going on. Cause he, the attractiveness of aloofness. Yeah. And he's so aloof. All the time. Right? With everyone, it yeah, seems. Right. Except for Phoebe. And so, what I find interesting in that moment is, he can't... She's, she's attractive. Even uh, his teacher, who he stays at his house. Antolini? An- Antolini. Even Antolini says essentially she's really attractive about Sally. And we get these descriptions from Holden mm. when he's looking at her about how attractive she is and how good she looks. And like one of my favorite scenes is she shows up 10 minutes late, yeah. which he's previously indicated he thinks he's going to be annoyed by. But when she does show up and she looks so good, he's like, he says, you know, person is never actually upset with a good looking girl when they show up late, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> It is amazing the kind of awareness of... Um, how easy it is to let go of anger for <laughs> for an attractive for attractive people or even just people you like yeah no it's true you know it's so true this is actually something that i've worked a lot on in my life but anyway so going mm. back to right. the interesting facts here is he can't actually receive her affections mm-hmm. because he doesn't like himself and he actually kind of despises her for liking him right mm. which is a really interesting fact of people who are trying to get into relationships but Mm -hmm. like people who long for relationships which he obviously does Mm -hmm. but are unable to give themselves the kind of affection that you need to be able to give yourself to be in a healthy relationship exactly i wonder if it's also like if it's the okay so holden is looking for easy answers to his problems and one of them is a partner and partner is a partner and he's going superficial surface level stuff and then not finding the answer and then just using that as more evidence as to why he's unlovable, he's unlikable, and so is everybody else. But the weird part is he never actually says any of those things. Right. I don't think he's actually aware that he thinks of himself as unlovable. No, he doesn't state it. Because he does. He spends all this time projecting the unlovable things about himself onto others. Mm-hmm. But but there are a number of these like kind of funny, weird prose, the way the prose works, where he's like, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm like that too. 
right? Or right. maybe maybe or or he does have the reflection of like he hates that he's a coward. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like I'm yeah. so yellow-bellied. Like remember he talk he's talking about his jacket and his gloves being stolen. Right. And he's like if I went to the room of the person who stole them mm-hmm. and I found them in their closet, I still wouldn't be able to call them a thief because I'd be scared mm-hmm. that they were going to beat me up. Well, and I would yeah, like I think his biggest projection that he's putting on to others but really himself is that of being a phony yeah and i think the psychological form of inauthenticity that he might be talking about with sally let's say her for sure and maybe other characters in the book is that he's afraid that if sally sincerely likes him for something that he doesn't quite know about himself he's gonna have to dig deep to find that thing that other people sincerely like about him which isn't the easy path that's the hard path yeah and if he doesn't do that work he'll be outed as a phony but if he does do that work, he's got to kind of figure out how to change his attitude about the world. Yeah. Right? Right. And so there's like this weird under the surface layer psychology going on of, okay, well, if Sally's right that there's something worthwhile about me, I'm either going to come out as a phony, which is the thing I hate, or I'm going to actually have to start working hard to not be a phony, which means I can't just have these blasé sideways attitudes and opinions about other people with that are unreflected. Well, it's interesting, right? Because right after they're, they're finished skating, we get this scene where he's talking to her and he tries to open up to her. But the only thing that he can open up about is how he kind of hates everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. Right? And he's like, let's just run away. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a, and, 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 you know, I and maybe a younger version of myself hmm. would have really empathized with that because of how I felt about myself, mm-hmm. right? But it's it's interesting because I've actually experienced this with a girl before, <laughs> where like I thought I was being deep and opening up about like all of this, you know, I don't things know. you didn't like, yeah, yeah, like being really negative, and it really turned them off, and they just were like, well, why would I want to be around you? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and they didn't say that, but like it was immediately like everything fizzled and died. I think that puts another layer on what I'm saying though. It's like, okay, well maybe the authentic Holden isn't actually what you think. Right. (laughs) Like maybe, maybe it's not even what he thinks. Yeah. The element of truth here that I actually really don't like these people sincerely uh, will grind against your attraction and what you think is a sincere like of me. So, so he, he, he's like, oh, she likes me. Now I'm going to try to reveal my real self mm-hmm. or what he thinks is his real self, yeah. which actually I think is one layer above his real self. Yeah. But has elements of it. Yes. I mean, What's the element that's good, let's say, is that mm-hmm. he's very perceptive about the problems in the world sure. and very aware of what he doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. But he's what he's not aware of is that a lot of that, he can't change other people. And it's on him. It's on him. It's his, his interpretation of the thing. Yeah. Like, he doesn't quite have a good mechanism yet for differentiating what of the things he doesn't like is on other people and what's on him. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like in the sense that, you, like you mentioned earlier, the stream of consciousness, everything is raw data that we're getting 100% interpreted through his brain. And now, obviously, part of maturity is realizing that even if some of the things you're perceiving are correct, the chance that 100% are are almost impossible. Yes, <laughs> so exactly. you have to like, I don't know, in my life, a big part of it is really deliberating between, okay, this interaction, if I'm trying to be dispassionate about it, which, which of these things that I said are true you know, uh, more objectively and maybe the other person needs to work on and which of them is actually just my projection or what I'm talking about. Well, I think this is the hardest thing about being uh, authentic with yourself and, mm-hmm. and, and, and aware is that there's stuff in all of us that's shit, mm-hmm. right? And like, right. I think a lot of people, ha- this is their struggle, is they see the shit and they start beating themselves up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wow, I really am shit. 
And like that is one approach to these things. And it seems to sort of be Halden's approach. Mm. But that there's no light at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> no. That's a mine shaft, right? Because you can't escape those things being true, but those things being true shouldn't be the defining reality of your life. Mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest things about these things being exposed that we don't like about ourselves is that we can work on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recently went through an experience where a lot of things I didn't like about myself were made very public. Sure. And I had to deal with that happening mm-hmm. in a way that I, I'm not sure that I fully dealt with it yet, but it has to be processed. Exactly. Right. And, and the, one of the ways that, that it could be processed is I want revenge. Yeah. Right. I want revenge on the person who did this to me. Mm-hmm. But that's not which is serve. early book Holden. Yeah, that's not going to serve no. anything. No, no, no. Um, and also, or I could, or I could project my own insecurities further and be like, well, well, you know, that's just the the horrible world that we live in. Or I could really mm-hmm. take the data and be like, oh, <laughs> there are these things yeah. that I need that I need to really change, mm-hmm. or or I'm going to keep repeating these same painful mistakes mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm not sure that Holden we we ever get a moment where Holden realizes this yet but also he's 16 so yeah but again i think the beauty of the ending isn't a 180 in his trajectory it's a slight uptick yeah (laughs) right like in the sense that we're left with the idea that he has maybe some potential now to know how to begin improving yeah which is more realistic because it's generally not an overnight it's not a silver bullet yeah yeah exactly so yeah his uh his confusion between what's sincere and what is his interpretation and what other people might sincerely think about him is just so intertwined with his confusion about how to understand a gift, maybe. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like that. that okay. really good. Next line, page 91, another quote of his. When you are feeling depressed, you can't even think. Hmm. And I will just speak to this a little bit in the sense that in this COVID lockdown, well, not lockdown, but this COVID time, I have been feeling probably mildly depressed. And it's manifested a bit physiologically with me in symptoms of headaches and fatigue. And I've seen medical professionals who have like eliminated a lot of, you know, I've had blood tests and I even had a CT scan and those are clear. So thank goodness for that. So it is really like I've had periods of this summer where I just I went through the whole day without even being able to really think abstractly about anything. Like I'm so I'm basically an animal. I'm in the moment tired. All I want to do is lie down and sleep or not do anything. And 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 it's it's so weird because the way I've felt, I know people suffer from this way more deeply than I do. So I'm trying to approach this with respect and empathy. But what I felt in that is I could still eat, even though I didn't have much of an appetite, I could still, you know, like do the normal functions. It didn't hurt to go to the bathroom. It wasn't hard to like drink water. It wasn't hard to do kind of the more day-to-day animal-based things that people have to do in their life. What was hard was like reading books. What was hard was thinking about the books I was reading. It was hard to do work for really true fiction kind of thing. And I just was like, that is so sad. The things you love the most. Because they're the things I love the most. Like the hardest thing for me to do in that time of life are the creative projects that give so much higher order meaning to my life, (laughs) you know? And so that line in the book really resonated with me 
it's funny how you sometimes read things at the right time yeah. to like have it be most affecting, you know? And so I don't know. Have you ever, when did, when is it hard for you to think? Would you say? I think for me, it's when I'm full of rage. Um, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. And when, when I get truly angry about something and usually that anger stems from one of two things, either a feeling of being attacked so usually my my response to being attacked is to attack at a much higher level or insecurity being triggered. And like, this is, I'd say the biggest thing I've been learning in the last three months is that I have had a very big struggle with insecurity. And I don't think I would have necessarily called it that before because I'm a very confident person, generally speaking, at least outwardly. I usually go with my convictions and I don't really struggle with being around people or, or any of that kind of stuff. And I wouldn't even say that like there's things about myself that I could consciously point to and say, oh, I really hate that thing about myself. But what I've discovered is that deep down, there is this gnawing desire to be recognized. And, and, and maybe that's what ambition was all along, was trying to prove something to the world or prove it to myself, maybe. Mm. Yeah, And when that negatively gets triggered, mm. um, one of my mentors once said that I just see red, right? And, I, and I, I can't think. I rationally don't process my actions to the degree that what I normally would and therefore end up doing things, you know, not doing things, but usually saying things that I regret. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm working on it. I think seeing, seeing someone about these things, which is what I'm doing now, can be really good for no other reason then it's someone you can talk to about what you're going through who doesn't know you. Right. Who you're paying to listen to you. <laughs> yeah. Who does this for a living. And this podcast has been therapeutic just talking to all of you, the listeners, mm. right? And being able to share my life with you guys and share my thoughts on on th- the things I, I honestly love the most in the world, mm. and which is stories. And I would say... I recommend it to anyone to go go see someone if sure. you can, if you could afford it, or if you have like um, I don't know, uh, if you have coverage. benefits coverage. Mm. Not because like you're you're some really broken person who it's kind of like I think there's a a bit of a taboo around this kind of stuff. It's like well, you must be in real trouble if you're seeing someone. I don't think so. I think it's just really healthy. But going back to not being able to think, I think the only way we can th- we can think is after these things. So like. Mm. So like get once you're out of whatever you're what you're going through, and I think you're you know, once you're out of that, mm. looking back and be like, why did that happen, mm-hmm. right? And for me, it's like I can't change when the moment I'm triggered, but I can think about <laughs> yeah. it afterwards. So the reflection part is so. Crucial. And then the next time I'm in it, I'll be like, oh wait, there will be there will be a tiny little stop gap. Mm. It'll be like, hold on, right? You know what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of a little heuristic I got from Daniel Dennett of um, every time you hear the word surely in an argument, you have a little ding, a little bell that goes off because that's like usually an assumption right. versus a explanation. Yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. It's surely little, you agree this way. You these know? little uh, signposts we can lay along the mm, way for our yeah. future self, our current self can lay these yeah, saying, like hey, look, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. Systematize your own self-improvement. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, well, uh, hopefully, right? Well, that's uh, that's essentially what the um, effective altruism movement, Will McCaskill type, is from the Oxford, is, uh, Oxford University. Is um, We put so much emphasis on like, 
human intention and conscious decision making to be moral when it comes to like charity, let's yeah. say, right? Actually, the best way to do it is to make it just recurring. Yeah. <laughs> you don't actually have to just like, habitual. Yeah, yeah. Less about look at what a good person I am and just like. Oh, okay, I'm signing up for five percent of my income every month to go to this established charity, and then, I don't have to think and then about I don't it. have to think about it. And that actually helps way more than <laughs> yep. like the preening that often goes along with oh, for sure. charity. And- I think I still give to the Ottawa Humane Society just because they made it like a twenty-five dollar a month thing, <laughs> yeah, and I haven't yeah, figured yeah. out how to get off of it. You yet. know, David, I think that message is so crucial, especially in this COVID time, because my prediction is people are probably. Five to ten percent, on average, less mentally healthy than normal. Yeah, right? Yeah. I think all of this, and everyone has a slightly different scenario, but like, whatever the your situation is about, seeing friends or not seeing friends, what kind of like social or domestic situation you have, what your work is like, employment or unemployment. I just, I've just seen a kind of, I call it a glacial mental health issue where. It moves so slowly that it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it's happening. But it's just less energy in the world, it feels like. With yeah, this everyone's and then, a little bit off. And then it it can explode in really antisocial ways, right? And I, I just imagine that there's a lot of people out there who felt similar to me this summer, let's say, where I'm like 5 to 10% off. Yeah. Where it feels like every organ in my body is functioning 5% less effectively than it does when I'm just kind of normal on top of my game, you know? And like, it's, it's small enough that it doesn't feel appropriate to complain about, Yeah, (laughs) but it's enough that it is affecting my life, you know? And, and I feel empathy for people who, and, and it, and it certainly has given me more. I mean, I feel like I had it before, but I definitely have way more respect. (laughs) That's the wrong word. I have way more deep substantive empathy and sympathy for people who are clinically depressed. Yeah. I definitely do. Like, it, it you know, <laughs> there's that episode in The Office where Michael's like, I think I'm depressed. But it's like, he's making a joke, but he's like, Dwight's like, isn't that just a fancy word for feeling bummed out? <laughs> and then Michael says, Dwight, you ignorant slut. <laughs> and right now, I feel like I'm having maybe a mild version of Luke, you ignorant slut <laughs> right. moment where I was like, I didn't take it as seriously before as I do now. And I think that that makes sense in one set in in a, in a way where it's like experiencing something. Makes you write it, what you know, right? Exactly. You think what you know. And in the long run, I think it. I'm going to try and. It's like I always say, everything is practice for something else. So, how to use this season well is to remember it and to try and talk about it in a more illuminating manner, so that it's not defining of an entire era of my life or other people's lives, right? And honestly, the thing that has been the best salve for this has been talking about ideas with other people. Like, I just feel so refreshed every time I just have a conversation with somebody yeah. that is even an iota above the common every day, <laughs> you know? And so, obviously, uh, podcasting is a big part of that. Yeah. So it's definitely helped, and I agree. Like, the therapy behind just talking about our favorite stories is crucial. Oh yeah, you know, and I hope that I hope that this podcast makes you go for beer with your friends and read books and start a book club. <laughs> yeah, right. Like yeah. it's an antidote. I mean, there's <laughs> again now. I've I've done this actually sincere talk of depression, but I have to, you know, I have humor in my bones too, and so I got to make a joke. There's like, um, this could be apocryphal, but is attributed to Freud, where Freud says, "You're not depressed. Your friends are just assholes." <laughs> <laughs> 
And you know, there's an element yeah. of truth in that, I think. Uh, Good friends who you can talk to are a huge bulwark against massive, depression. Massive, massive. Absolutely. You know, I've always talked about how my ascending hierarchy of things that make life worth living are humor, culture, and friendship. Yes, you know, I so. love that. And I've always said that friendship's the chief joy of my life. Of so. course, yeah. yeah. Okay, next little thing he brings up that I think is maybe more fun for you and me to talk about and just have a riff on. Holden's opinion is he bets Jesus would pardon Judas. And yeah. doesn't buy the doesn't like the minister's phony voices. So do, I'll ask it as a question: Do you think Jesus would pardon Judas? So <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> I've read books on this. Okay, I think yes, but yeah. I don't think Judas would pardon himself. Mm. Like the oh, I that's guess a good the, take. The Louisian uh, idea of hell. So C.S. Lewis. Okay, is that it is a place we keep ourselves, mm. and I, I like would agree on that just from a psychological standpoint and actually theological. If I was if I was saying what do Christians believe, sure, like the only thing separating you from God in a Christian theological framework, or at least the kind that I I've, I've been raised in and and thought about a lot, mm-hmm. is your own inability to bend the knee. Mm. right to say you know what you are you are god that's right. it that's all you have to do right is is um i mean it, it seems kind of silly mm-hmm. but actually i think it's quite psychologically profound gives you a low resolution purpose that you can meet pretty easily and thus be ordered in your mentality and, y- and yet very difficult in practice sure. right because <laughs> yeah. it is so easy to be in that kind of david foster wallace sense myopic mm-hmm. and and worship the self and make your your desires and your feelings the mm-hmm. center of your universe. Mm-hmm. I mean at least the take that I like the most about Judas is that he he couldn't forgive himself. The reason he hung himself is cuz he couldn't forgive himself for, for, for betraying right. uh Jesus. Like he he pre-understood so, his own So I think Salinger is completely right here, but I don't think that that is a a novel theological idea. That's what I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny because in in the uh, Divine Comedy, in the Inferno, the lowest rung of hell is is kept for traitors. Yes, and betrayers, and so obviously Judas, being arguably the most famous traitor. Yes. in at least Western culture. I mean, or Brutus maybe, but probably Judas is higher. Yeah, I think if you were going to take Brutus. Cassius, Judas, and Benedict Arnold, right. and vote on the most famous traitor in all of Western history, it would be Judas. probably yeah, Judas yeah, would yeah, win that right. election. Right. So it's, you know, obviously Dante probably had that in mind when he, well, obviously, yes. <laughs> clearly. Now, here's what I, I enjoyed that in the book, the minister is harping on the fact that Judas is damned for all eternity and would never be and Jesus wouldn't even dream of saving Judas because of how evil he is and I agree I do think Jesus I think Jesus would try to pardon Judas and I agree with your analysis that Judas would again then deny the pardon because he feels like he did it so so what he did was so, so terrible and egregious yeah. that he was beyond the pale now here's I I think the fun riff here might be do we think Jesus could convince Judas otherwise? No. Well, at least not within that worldview. Because Right, but that's what I'm because asking. Because that's how could God Jesus, limits himself, right? But could Jesus change Judas's worldview? And I'm inclined to think, I think with enough time and enough conversation, the essence of Jesus could. Right, okay. Right? Like All the, right. the um when I think of the goodness of Jesus, I think of him similar in a way to narrative. In that you get him talking long enough, he slips underneath your 
conceptions and preconceptions. Well, that's why he told stuff. parables, right? Exactly. Yes. So I'm wondering if there's a scenario where Jesus and Judas are sitting down at a bar talking, and Judas goes through the entire litany of reasons why he doesn't forgive himself, and Jesus says, you're right, you don't deserve it. Now, here's why I'm offering it. But that's the thing. is That's the whole story, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we've talked about this, I think, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. But like, that's the whole point. Of forgiveness? Of forgiveness, right. is you don't deserve it. Yes. Right? Nobody does. Um, now, obviously, Jesus could make some sort of like sociological point, sociological to theological point, where it's like, well, I needed to be crucified, <laughs> yeah. so without your betrayal, actually, nobody would be saved. <laughs> yeah. So in one sense, you're actually a hero. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> but true. my favorite sermons were always centered around essentially this message about Jesus, where it was, yeah, no, actually, you don't deserve it, but I want to extend to you the kind of grace that even someone in the lowest rung of hell could grab onto and feel like they got a sincere second chance. Well, and the reason that I think this is important is Peter did betray Jesus. Mm. Not to the degree, I guess, that Judas did on a practical level, but he denied him. Mm. And what what is Jesus' response? Forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, And Peter doesn't feel like he deserves to be forgiven Mm -hmm. for that. Because what Jesus, yeah, exactly. Now, see, and this is what Jesus does that's so great is he says, he doesn't deny any of the things that they did, right? Like, he doesn't pretend like, oh, well. Oh, I whatever, know, it doesn't matter. I know in your heart, Peter, you denied me, but I know you denied me, but in your heart, you didn't mean it. It's like, no, in your heart, you meant it. Yeah. And that's still okay. Yeah. Right? To Judas, like, no, in your heart, you betrayed me for 30 gold, 30 silver pieces or whatever it is. And I know you meant it. And I know you feel terrible. And I know you think you're unforgivable. And so I'm admitting to all of the things that are true about this situation, and yet I'm still consciously choosing to give you another chance. Now, and not even another chance, like to say, sure, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Like I'm, I'm not gonna live with prejudice towards you for the rest of my life. Well, and okay, so let's take this into what we were talking about with Holden in terms mm. of how he feels about himself. Right. Like, that's how you need to treat yourself. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 Like you need to look at these. Things and you you don't say well you know I didn't mean it or oh you don't don't come up with excuses mm-hmm. for why you did the horrible things you did uh-huh. because as long as you're making excuses you're not facing the reality of the situation mm-hmm. but you need you need to be honest with yourself and say look I I did these things yeah and they, then they were not good they were horrible you know how like I I sometimes talk to you about the third path yeah. it's like what's the other way out of this situation that we haven't thought about yet. And what I think I value so the most to me, one of the most, I'd have to think about this more, one of the most philosophically vital ideas to come out of Christianity is the concept of grace. Yeah. I I do think it's one of the strongest philosophical arguments even. (laughs) Yeah, right. That that has come out of Christian theology, let's say, centered around the, the figure of Christ. And I think the story that you told of Peter and the hypothetical story we're telling about Jesus and Judas is that it's kind of like a thought experiment of, okay, even all of these things I've done, what's the interpretation of this where I can move forward in a healthy way yeah, and, and get on with my life, right? Now, literally, Judas doesn't do that. No. And, and so the, the metaphor is so powerful because it extends beyond death even, right? It extends on like even if... 
I mean, it's portrayed this way in Christianity, like you can be forgiven even after death, right? Like the grace is, this idea isn't even limited by physical life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's so as a motif, it extends into eternity. And that is such a vitally important idea in how humans can interact with each other. And then as you're saying, even put it on themselves. Yeah. Like, how can I forgive myself to move on? And, and have a life that's improving, right? Yeah. And I think part of that story that Holden goes through and the way he conceives of it is around why I feel hopeful for him. Yes, he gets <laughs> you know? it. Yeah. yeah. He's at least on the third path. Yeah, yeah. He say. hasn't got there yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's broken out of the binary or dichotomy of thinking about the world and he's working on something different. Yeah. Okay, maybe this is useful here. So what do we think, how how do we define then maybe, because he talks so much about phoniness and yes, phonies. Yes, And he's got this line on page 205. He's talking about a cabin he might build out in the woods. And his line is, if anyone tried anything phony, they couldn't stay. People understand the uh, unattractiveness of people who are fake yeah. or flaky or, you know, because one of the the top five values that always comes up for me or I self-identify with is authenticity, yeah. right? Like that matters a lot to me. That's kind of a big bias of mine is to be seen as credible and authentic. And yet it's a very philosophically difficult thing to nail down. So Very, very. So my, I think we talked about it in one of the South Park episodes, but a working definition is something like self-awareness in everything. Like, a marriage of self-awareness with this kind of radical empiricism that William James talks about, where it's like self-awareness, but attributed to every nanosecond of your life and every single one of those counts. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then doing your best. But what do you think, like what does Holden consider here as phoniness and how's he missing the boat? I don't know, just anything around phoniness, authenticity, anything that comes to mind. It seems to me that what, Holden sees his phoniness as social niceties, but also on a deeper level, like you said, a lack of self-awareness, like an inability right. to reflect on the absurdity of the human condition and be like, oh, I like some of these things yeah, that yeah, I'm yeah. doing are so weird. Authenticity is hard. Earnestness is hard. So one of my good friends recently did a, a talk on earnestness and his definition of earnestness was very negative in that like it's it, it's kind of vacuous. Uh, and, and, I w and I was kind of say I was kind of a little bit taken aback, and then also like, well, okay, I see where you're going with this. You know, your, the word means something different to you. Well, this is what I would see as a positive kind of earnestness, and it would be a principled form of mm. earnestness. And so, okay. so authenticity. It's I think you have to have first principles to be truly authentic, mm. because if you don't, you're not going to have anything to moor yourself to. Mm. And therefore, how can you really be authentic if you don't have a thing to be authentic to? Right? Like, if you don't know who you are or, or know what you're about, then, then you're kind of just blown around in the wind. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, it's hard to, to really pin it down. But I guess my, my idea of it would be once you know, so, so you can't be authentic till you've established an understanding mm -hmm. of who you are. Mm -hmm. And then real positive form of authenticity is a constant reminder to yourself, a humility, mm -hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. It's not authentic to like this image of yourself because you could be authentic to a really negative image of yourself. <laughs> sure. Right? It's hard. It's it's really tricky because there's t- kind of two elements to it. It's like, okay, well, how do I manage to stay authentic? So there's the like the internal personal, but then there's the also like, how do I perceive the world in the sense of what can I trust right. as credible and authentic and what isn't? And this could potentially be like a, a psychologically technical way of defining it. But if there's a big gap conceptually between the way something is impressed upon the world and the way it is if you see behind the curtain, that's inauthentic. Okay. Right? Yep. Like yep. if you... Almost uh, a Wizard of Oz Propaganda. Like yeah. Like right. this is the easiest example. Propaganda is inauthentic because the cognitive tie between what you might read or see in a propagandistic poster or pamphlet is very different from the reality on the ground as experienced by human beings, right? Obviously, the Soviet Union is a great example of this, like workers of the world unite, and yet you read that pamphlet and then you see all the people who are starving. (laughs) Yeah. It's like there's there's just a conception, there's a clear conceptual disjunct between the thing you read and what's happening about the thing you're reading about, yes. right? Yeah. And so when I follow public intellectuals, one of the things we, we use this term building credibility with people, right? It's like it's an incremental process of having essentially what you say match what you do, Yes. <laughs> right? right? I mean, right. I haven't brought him up for a while, but my favorite poetic version of that is from Emerson when he writes, uh, what you do speaks so loud I can't hear what you say, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or actions speak louder than words. That's a maybe cliche way to put it, but I, I do think there is a technical way there where it's like if there's a massive disjunct conceptually between how something, the impression something is trying, and then, and then you have to register, okay, is this disjunct on purpose or just an accident out of ignorance, right? Because right. that, that adds another variable of like, okay, well, is this person harping on the news about this thing, are they intentionally trying to deceive us through rhetoric or are they... Are they just mistaken in a true belief? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Because that's not inauthentic. No. To be mistaken as a good faith, true belief that you just maybe have the wrong facts about is not inauthentic. No. But it is a different problem that needs to be rectified. So I would say in our culture, we are forgiving of people who have sincere mistaken beliefs. And I agree. We need, like, that's fair. We should be. Yeah, yeah we should be. But then we kind of miss the next step of like, well, Allow me to point out the mistake so that we can move on to the next not mistake. Right, <laughs> right, right. As best as possible as we can through dialectic and interaction, right? So, yeah, I see it as two problems. There's the social problem of authenticity and the personal psychological problem of authenticity. And maybe those aren't exactly the same things, but they're related, right? And so then I take the social and I bring it to myself and I say, okay, when am I presenting myself in a way that I know deep down I don't really think? or I don't really feel, or I'm getting beyond my bounds of knowledge. And I try to rein myself in more and more. It's like, I try, when you know, on this podcast, if we're bringing up something that I only know a little bit about, I try to preface it with that. Yes. Like, yes. oh, I'm remembering this from memory, not from... Or I'm an amateur. Yeah, 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 yeah. In our episode we recently released on Dr. Strangelove, we made a couple factual mistakes, and I make sure to write those in to the episode notes as corrections, right? And anytime, if it's ever brought up to me that I've made a mistake, I try to do that, right? And so I think that's part of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like a... It's proportion. Trying to have your... Humility, right? Your opinions be proportionate to your knowledge. So I don't know. Like, this is a... I think authenticity is a fascinating topic to me because it's something I care so much about and can never quite nail down. 
Ah, to, that's a good, in, in yeah. a total sense, you know, but I think that's part of the ongoing project. Yeah, the self improvement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In some sense, exactly. right? So the the deeper you dig, sometimes at least that I find this, the deeper you dig into your own psyche, the more you realize, oh, there are definitely mm-hmm. er- areas where I didn't even realize I wasn't being authentic <laughs> that I wasn't being yeah. authentic. Right? So I would love any listener who has an opinion on authenticity to send it in. Yes, because this is a fascinating do. topic to both. And of also, us. I think it's also a buzzword that I hate. <laughs> yes. So yeah. That. Well, buzzword, again, because it's inauthentically used. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole problem go. with buzzwords is that they're they're used in a sense that people know that these words are supposed to be important, so we'll just use them whenever we want so we seem important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it dilutes their meaning. Anyway, just a couple of last things about Holden. He has this line on page 185. You're supposed to leave someone alone if they're excited about something. Oh. Now, what do you... I loved that I line. I love that, too. Because... That dovetails I really. Forget, what is, who, what, I can't. I think it was Antolini or Phoebe right. or someone. But anyway, it's like some character was giving somebody else a hard time or shutting down an, a, a level of excitement because they just didn't have energy or want to deal with it or yeah. thought thought it wasn't important or something like that. And then he says this line: "You're supposed to leave someone alone if they're excited about something." And I. This dovetails really nice with what I call highest common denominator, like someone firing on all cylinders. That's what I want out of someone. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've we've definitely you talked about this with this magic before. cards, yeah, right? or yeah. or like the Mass Effect. I have a friend who was really mm. into Mass Effect, or even um, Warhammer Forty Thousand. Like right, personally, right, right. not something that you know would you know necessarily light my soul on fire. Mm-hmm. But I love watching another person get really excited about yeah. it, and I I often get swept away in that excitement mm-hmm. and enjoy myself. It's, mm-hmm. I, I'd say if I have to like one of the things I like most about myself, it would be that I love people who are passionate about things absolutely now i think the challenging step there for me personally anyway is okay it's one thing to engage with someone who's passionate about something that you are maybe neutral about right it's a little harder if it's something that you are let's say already prejudiced against or don't like yeah (laughs) so here's an example that i've had to overcome in my life so I had a very good friend I used to work with, and she loves music, and I love music. However, her favorite kind of music is (laughs) K-pop. Right. And she is rabidly passionate about the K-pop that she loves. And I find pop music in general to be bland and unsubstantial, and I really had to get over that. But at a deeper level, I got it because the music I love, I also love very passionately and rabidly. right? Right, right. And she exemplified the same passions for the type of music she liked that I do about the type of music I liked. And that, I think music has actually been my biggest challenge in this regard. I've been pretty easy to, to, to fall into other people's passions about like movies that don't appeal to me maybe, or, or just activities, but music for some reason has just stuck. It's so hard. personal for it's you. so personal yeah. that that's been my challenge. So I think in this vein, find the hardest thing for you to appreciate someone else appreciating. And if you can manage that one... Then you know you're doing... You're maturing. You can do it in any maturing, version, yeah. right? It's kind of like how I say, if you're going to learn how to play guitar, learn on an acoustic instead of an electric because it's harder. So by the time you try to go to the electric, it's a little easier. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And then the title, like the song that he hears earlier, I think it goes like, If a body catch a body coming through the rye... And he wants to be the catcher in the rye who stops people from going over the cliff. Of course, he misquote or he <laughs> yeah. mishears the lyrics, I but know. that's not. It's funny. I, I love that 
that this insight that he has received is a misquoted lyric. <laughs> right. Because like how human is that? Yeah, it's to, so good. To get some kind of like very personal idea. Uh, well, a great example is one of my favorite lines in music ever is by Leonard Cohen. And it's uh, he knows he's really nothing but a brief elaboration of a tune. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics that are online is someone's heard it, but a brief elaboration of a tube. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well... Obvious. I wonder if that means something to someone because it's not the, the proper lyrics. Right. But what does that mean to someone? Yeah. And like, how yeah, personal yeah, yeah. is a mis? How personal is a misquoted lyric that means something to you? Mm-hmm. And an example of this actually is an Auden poem, mm-hmm. my favorite Auden poem, September first, uh, nineteen thirty nine, mm-hmm. in which it says, "Children afraid of the." night who have never been happy or good but i've always in my mind quoted that line children afraid of the dark who have never been happy or good. slightly different connotation and yet that's a personal and important line and thought in my mind but it's not it's a it's a slight misinterpretation oh, cool. yeah. i just love that salinger recognizes mm-hmm. the significance that our own perception <laughs> of sure. art can have i guess right 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 yeah, that's great. I love that. I didn't even think of that. So are we... Okay, I'm interpreting his metaphor of the catcher in the rye there as he wants to be someone who helps other people from making terrible mistakes. Like he makes. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, like I think he he's trying to help people avoid the cliff. That they can't see because they're in the rye, and which then, presumably is above and then, their And then there's that, that great section where his teacher's talking about the fall. And what kind mm. of fall is he experiencing? And he's experiencing this never-ending fall where he won't hit the ground and he won't even really realize he's falling because what's actually happening to him right. is he's been looking for... He doesn't feel that his environment can fulfill him mm-hmm. in any meaningful way. For the, His environment does not contain the thing he's looking for. And yet I think that perhaps that is a misinterpretation of him because when he hears that song, right. he realizes he's falling and really what he wants to help people do is avoid that mm-hmm. fall. And it's a, avoid the fall. And it's specifically, I think the way it, the imagery of them being in a field of rye is that he knows the dangers there, but they don't. Yes. So he's the only one that can actually protect them. Like a sheepdog. Yeah. Or like he, he, he wants to be a protector. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe this is the time to go into it. The reason he wants to be the protect, the protector it's because he hasn't been protected. Mm, yeah. And he's coming to terms with his falling. Yeah. The things he's fallen. I mean, and it's literally the friend of his, James Castle, literally fell out of a... Well, yeah, or, or jumped. jumped. Yeah. Yeah. And why is that? So that's the first thing that he thinks of that he really likes when he thinks of something. And the mm-hmm. second thing he thinks of is the nuns. Mm-hmm. Right. Helpers. Right, right, right. Look, look for the helpers, right? Potentially the like antidotes to these really difficult psychological things he's dealing with a and b he is so hyper aware of the bad in the world Mm -hmm. the phoniness let's call it right and yet he is so drawn to humble Mm -hmm. helpers right he's hyper aware of three things i think he's hyper aware of the phoniness he's hyper aware of the myopic nature of most people like he hates listening to people talk about things Mm. that that um, he thinks they don't even care about. But he is also hyper aware of the people who, who are being left out, left right. behind, ignored, forsaken, pushed aside. And those are the people that he wants to not let fall through the cracks. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that that probably moves us nicely and then to um, Mr. Antolini, who is his older, old professor or old teacher. But, but only slightly older than his brother, it Yes, yeah. Like he's that. a young, he's basically a mentor. Probably like in his mid-30s, or no, probably like late 20s. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I, I can't remember who I was talking to this about, but um, it's kind of funny when you are, like generally you you are like two generations removed from your parents, mm-hmm. which means there's a generation in between you and your parents. And the people of that generation are generally who end up being your mentors. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So like in my family, we have my parents who were baby boomers. And then we had this one friend who lived with our family for a long time and then got married. And they're, they're Gen Xers. So they're, you know, 15 years older than me. And then there's me, who's the millennial, who's friends now with them, kind of in a different way. Like they yeah. were around, they were my age when I was a kid, yes, or like right, a little younger. Yeah. And now they have kids who are born in like the late '90s, early 2000s, Gen who are Gen Z, who are now like have the same. Like I kind of have that relationship, not deeply with, but you know, it's just funny how when you're only one generation removed, there's a kind of attachment you feel yes from a yes. mentor mentee relationship that's yeah. a little bit different than someone who's as old as your parents are in relation to you yeah like that's a little bit more definitively authoritative whereas the the, the generation that's only one above you is kind of like earned authority yeah, yeah. <laughs> through Agreed. relationship and that kind of thing so anyway so mr antolini he represents to me this idea that i've talked about before which is the echoes through the ages because he's got that line where he says, men who ponder the moral and spiritual nature of humans. And I was really impressed by this because it's like, Antolini is admitting to Holden that yes, all of the things that he's struggling with are soul-sucking. But part of the um, rectification of that is understanding that you're not the first person to feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that and, and, and great how... minds have written about it. That and you, you can, can read it. Yeah. And Hitchens has this line, one of the great things in life is the consolation of philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the consolation of the fact that other people have struggled hundreds of years before even, or thousands even with Marcus Aurelius, let's say, and have written it down. And that they've also pondered the moral and spiritual mm, part of the human condition. And I love that. That's what I'm calling the echoes through the ages. When I read Emerson or Dickens or Aurelius or Socrates or well Plato through Socrates, right? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm not the first person in history oh, to yeah, feel this, this way about something. At. Yeah, and so I like that he provided that. And then his other line on page 188: the mark of the immature man is he wants to die nobly for a cause, while the mark of the mature man is that he wants to live humbly for one. Yeah. And it's just yeah. so, like, you know, hot knife through butter. Doesn't get better than that. And perhaps that would be good information for our culture today. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. But really the thing I want to talk about Antolini about is, okay, so after all of these really uplifting scenes with him, he's like weirdly this kind of pervert almost. Like yeah. he's petting Holden's head and we don't know why. Like no, we, yeah, Holden, we, Holden leaves before we're able to discover if Mr. Antolini has a sexual attraction to Holden or if he's just kind of a weirdo. I mean, he's a weirdo. He's a weirdo. But we don't know why. We don't know what kind of weirdo. Like there could be different degrees of weirdness he's going for here. And this is kept purposely vague, I think. Yes, yeah. So I would submit here that this is maybe a candidate for what I call the difference between a Promethean and a hero. Intellectually, let's say. Okay. For me, someone, 
and and Antolini himself might not be a good candidate for this, and we can talk about that in a second. But for me personally, my person that would be the best exemplified here would be Nietzsche, where I call Nietzsche a Promethean of mine, but not a hero of mine, because I think it's a slightly different connotation. I think if you call someone a hero, I am submitting this, but I think you have to take on a lot of their character flaws. <laughs> right. Whereas if someone is a Promethean, at some point in their journey, they gave you fire. And so you don't have to be as attached to the kind of person they were to use what they ignited in you to go do good somewhere else. I like this distinction. Right. So Nietzsche, and if I call Nietzsche a hero, I'm more beholden to maybe some of his misogyny. Well, how do you explain his treatment of women? You know, in truth, I put my hands up and I say, yeah, it's a terrible thing about him. Or his elitism, maybe, right? If he's a hero of mine, it's like, well, how do you feel about having a hero that was this elitist and misogynistic? And I have to say, shit. I bite the bullet. I can't. But under this different framing of as a Promethean, I can take the idea of eternal recurrence and the Ubermensch as someone who self-overcomes to be the best version of themselves, which I think is the most philosophically vibrant version of when we say be your best self. Actually, this stems from Nietzschean work. Right, right. <laughs> and then again, the Nazis bastardized yes, for exactly. their own interpretation. I'm saying like, look, I don't, I don't need to sign off on everything Nietzsche said or did to understand that he gave me some fire for something right and also to you don't have to say that a person was good to say they were insightful exactly or passing on that promethean flame so that i i go take that little spark i got from nietzsche to go search the caves and and dark places with with the illuminating flame that i got from him let's say right and it's like nietzsche being what i consider to be one of the deepest thinkers ever is a perfect candidate for this, but there's others like Hitchens. I don't think Hitchens is a particularly good example of how you should treat your body. Well, no, true. <laughs> right? Very if I say point. Hitchens is a hero of mine, it's like, well, you know, he smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. Is that a good idea? Well, no, I wouldn't want that role modeled in my life, but yeah. I'm not committed to that. It, I say, like, I'm. this is a philosophical postulation I'm making. I'm not committed to all of the vices of a person that are maybe not worth exemplifying if I consider them a Promethean versus a hero. I like that a lot because that distinction takes... So a lot of people desire to be someone because of what they see them as having. So let's say mm-hmm. Hitchens, a following. Right. Or let's say Nietzsche. Or a celebrity public intellectual, right? Or, or let's say a sports figure talent. None of those things I think should be what you build your life on Mm -hmm. because if you're pursuing those things in the David Foster Wallace sense, you're going to die a thousand deaths before you die. But if you make your heroes, the people who self overcome, I mean, even with, it's funny, Nietzsche saying that that is what makes the Uberman. He's understanding that he can't self overcome (laughs) because he couldn't and he didn't look for the people who do that. And often they won't be the people who are self aggrandizing, who are well known, who are out there because they don't need that because mm-hmm. a lot of that outward stuff mm-hmm. is all about validation. I don't have to take on as a responsibility all of the kind of untowardness of Dickens' personal life to consider his work worth pursuing into the future. The ideas. Here's a good example. I don't have to take Sir John A. McDonald's bigotry yeah, right. or his alcoholism or anything from him. So he's a Promethean, and the, what is what is the Promethean thing that he did? He gave us Canada. <laughs> yeah. That's an idea, which I'm very fond of. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say I love. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to take the baggage of, of the problems that were Sir John A. MacDonald 
I could just take the idea. Exactly. And I think that that's the point. It's the ideas that you could, I mean, it's kind of a similar debate to like, how can you separate an artist from their work, right? Like, how do we feel about Michael Jackson's music? Let's or say, even, right let's now. say, Dickens' treatment of his family. Exactly. Now, attempting to be thorough about this, I think there are limits. I think there are things people could do. I don't know. This is an open question. Antolini being... Maybe a pedophile. Maybe a pedophile. That colors a bit more, I think. And this is also Selinger's genius, Mm -hmm. right? Because he gives you these really lofty and thoughtful ideas about like the human condition and education. And then he slaps you in the face with like, what is this? Right. And and that's maybe a wa- part of why this is such a classic is uh-huh. he he can he can build a whole narrative and then give you a tiny but but the the moment that I want to talk about after mm. is where we know that this has happened to Holden twenty times before it says right through him Holden says that Antolini. oh no 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 not Antolini uh. it's like this has happened to me before ah uh, yeah well that obviously is contributing to a lot of his psychology I, I, yeah exactly <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it almost feels like the only thing that can really get in the way of this analogy I'm making about the difference between a Promethean and a hero is, like, a, abuse of children. Like, I just don't well, know. Well, or, like, maybe, like, I, th- I think, no, I, I disagree. I think, like, there, there are lines of morality that have crossed really discredit and anything. Right? Okay, well, here's a, here's a contemporary example, maybe. Kevin Spacey. Right. Right. Now, Kevin Spacey, it's not exactly the same because it's not like he's an original thinker. He's just been an entertainer and a very, very, very talented one. And I still think American Beauty is one of the greatest movies ever made. I love it. I also think he was a rapacious asshole who abused minors. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a hard one. I'm, I wonder if also the medium of art changes how you feel because. Kevin Spacey, like his characters that aren't so much that behavior are easier for me to digest than like, let's say Frank Underwood from House of Cards, which seems more in line with what Kevin Spacey actually was like. Right. Or is like, right? he's still alive. So it's an open question. Now, a countervailing one is there was this band I used to really like at one time called The Lost Prophets, who lead singer is a pedophile and he got caught with very very young children and he's in jail and now i just can't listen to them right like it's like um and it might be because he was the singer but it's a bridge too far for me in terms of like aesthetic enjoyment of the music but it might be because music is a more authentic take on that specific artist as opposed to acting which is almost by definition pretending to be somebody else right which is something holden talks a lot about Mm -hmm. but now mr antolini being a character who gives Holden basically his out conceptually from his problems and yet is also like potentially trying to molest him. And that's him. the other, I think the problem in this context is we don't know if he's trying to molest him. Mm, right. But right. it seems that way. So I think there are edge cases which make my distinction between a Promethean and a hero difficult. But, but I, I think most of them don't fall into the edge case. No, I, th- I think it's a great dichotomy to mm-hmm. have because it allows yeah. you to take Things from people that you might not like, mm-hmm. and wisdoms that you might actually despise or think are, are are acting in evil ways, right? And it allows you to take that wisdom and then discard. Well, you're not obligated to pay homage to their ugly vices, yeah, that don't rise to the level of evil. Which I think is an important nuance in a society which will cancel someone, <laughs> right? Right? Like, oh yeah, this is the anti. 
this is the cancel culture antidote yes. in my opinion okay an authentic apology sincerely meant for a bad thing should be taken seriously and we move on yeah and on top of that we don't jettison out all the good ideas maybe someone brought to the table just because just because of a mistake yes right or a vice let's say now i don't i don't think we can in any way say that abusing minors is just a vice no 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 that's what i mean like uh. I, the, that's why i'm saying the abuse of minors child molestation pedophilia to me is the most obvious edge case but and i think i would ask listeners to look deep into their heart how do you actually feel about michael jackson right now mm. are you willing to never listen to a michael jackson song again in your life because i would say if you're committed to michael jackson as evil which <laughs> I don't know. It's an edge case, art versus artist. I, I think to be thorough on that, you'd have to say, I'm never going to listen to Thriller or Billie Jean ever again because that's in some sense paying homage. But then again, th- that's what I mean. It's so hard with the edge cases. But there are other, I don't know, like let's say Mick Jagger, who is maybe not the most laudable individual in history, but I don't think he was ever like rapaciously immoral. Right. (laughs) Right. Like he obviously slept with a lot of women, but presumably anyway, as long as it was consensual, which, you know, it's not hard for rock stars to get (laughs) consensual sex, even if it's not in the best interest of the young woman. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't need to be committed to his philandering to think that the Rolling Stones are just one of the greatest bands ever. And he's like a weirdly amazing performer. Right. 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 So I think Michael Jackson is the edge case, whereas most of the cases are more in this gray zone that if we have that Promethean versus hero distinction, we're, we shed off a lot of dead weight. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. I like that a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to, I don't know if I've ever fully articulated that thought before. I think I've brought it up on other episodes. Yeah, that's a good articulation of it, though. Well, thank you, David. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, so I loved, 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 loved that last chapter with him and Phoebe. Me too, yeah. Because the note I made is that she's the person that pulls him back. And I have noticed what I'm calling a pleasant asymmetry in life. And the pleasant asymmetry is that one person who does a lot for you can make up for a thousand people who don't. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so another way of putting it, I often say, is that um, if a soul is loved by individuals, it does not need to be liked by crowds. Yeah. I feel like this pleasant asymmetry is that for every hundred people, maybe, that I'm either... I mean, I don't really dislike many people, but I'm maybe standoffish from or can take you know, take it or leave it. The one person who does a lot for me does so much more for me that it can make up for a, a week of disappointment can, can fade away, washed away, washed in, away in the, in the intimacy or embrace or conversation of one person who, who does a lot for me. Right. Yes. Uh, and I feel the same way with music. I can hear a lot of songs I don't like. As soon as Gord Downey's voice comes on, I'm back in the, I love music train again. Right. So, Obviously, Phoebe, that whole scene, it's beautiful how she <laughs> pouts, yeah. is feeling like she's not going to help him, but then she forgives him. I don't know. What was your take on that whole section? Oh, I just love uh, also what children can do to mm. to the, you know, overly... And thoughtful children. Thoughtful children can do to overly intellectualized spirals, death spirals. I think I think of this a lot. I, th- I know this is probably the case with you, with your mom as well, but like... Just calling someone who who really loves you and talking something out. 
Yeah, it's so important. And now that's not what happened in this scene, but I think it kind of is. Uh, because it it wasn't that uh, the feeling is similar. The, the feeling is similar. What Phoebe did for Holden was contextualize everything. In, in case we didn't mention, I think we did. But Phoebe is Holden's ten year old sister. Yeah, and how she does that is just by being herself and and being authentically loving towards him and getting mad at him when he was going doing something that both hurt himself and her. And, and like drawing yeah. a basically drawing a line and being like, you don't get to treat me like this. Mm-hmm. And importantly, Phoebe is holding Holden to the standard that Holden should be holding himself to. Yes. Right. Yes. And that is a deep form of tough love. Well, one of the things that I've noticed, like people that I've noticed recently in relationship is if you don't draw lines, then people will, will like people will push the lines. And children do this all oh, the time when they're trying to see what they can. Boundary, boundary testing is kid behavior 101. Yeah. And one of the things that I am coming to really love is people in my life drawing a line with me and saying, no, no, that behavior is unacceptable. Mm, right. And then that helps me draw that line, right? And say, no, like, sorry, you don't get to do this. And the, the, the ability to say no is a lot more powerful, I think, than... Because I, this might s- seem strange to listeners, but I have a tendency to just say yes. Mm. And learning to say no has been really freeing because it's like, oh, that's also self-love. Mm-hmm. Is, no, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or, <laughs> or I'm not interested in your opinion on this thing. Right, like, right. Negatively ranting at me about how I've fucked up. Right? I'm, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and setting boundaries around yourself. And like, I just love how Phoebe does that, right? She, I don't even know if she does it consciously, but at first she's showing, showing him love. His response is to push her away. And she's like, no, sorry, you don't get to do that with me. I love you and you don't get to push me away. Like that is not an acceptable behavior to me. Mm-hmm. So that snaps him out of his death spiral. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he is on a death spiral. He's smoking three packs a day. Yeah. He's not sleeping. He's wandering around in the rain. He's he's so deep in the maze of self pity. He doesn't even know that he's in it. No. And she just and she's like, "What do you like? Do you really like anything? Mm-hmm. What is that saying?" And like, I love how there's these little hints. It's like, actually, you need to see a psychiatrist. Like, she's kind of like accidentally and weirdly Socratic. Yeah. With him, and there's just uh, she's asking him very basic but very far-reaching questions. Well, actually, he talks earlier when he's talking about her about that that mm. she's so good at asking questions. She's so smart, right? Mm-hmm. He's like he he's very effusive in his praise for her. Yes, it's true, which is part of what leads me feeling like he knows the right path. Yeah. Even if he doesn't know it yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because he. He does save his praise for the people that are, at least in the narrative, revealed to have earned it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just think Phoebe is such a lovely child who, like, I just thought it was so cute how she, she's, like, consciously realizing she's getting less mad at him. Yeah. (laughs) like, I guess I've forgiven you now, and we can be friends again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or also how excited she is about the play and hoping that her big brother will come and watch Mm -hmm. it. And and just how she gets caught up in enjoying the rides at the zoo and that kind of thing. It's like being a kid and... And the joy they bring, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, the only other thing I have is the very last part of the book. Oh, yes. Okay. So, the one other... The two other things is 
what amazing writing when it comes to nostalgia. Ooh, yeah. Okay. So there's one particular scene that just kind of was a big gut punch to me, but like in the good way, like in the like aching sort of, oh, life, life is so beautiful and yet so sad. Mm. So his, his younger brother has died. And he has this memory of his younger brother really wanting to come and do something with him, with him and another friend, and him and him saying, no, you can't come, to his little brother. And he, he talks about how he thinks about that a lot. Right, yeah. And it's just this gnawing regret. Mm. Not, and then he even says, you know, not that I didn't play with my brother all the time. It was just that one moment. And what a human... Like he took him for granted. This, the, what a description of a human emotion, mm. right? Where... Yeah. Where that little regret of that tiny little moment that any one of us could have had. And like I think about myself, like I have those those regrets myself. And when you have those regrets that are kind of eating away at you and something maybe you'd think about on your deathbed, go and talk to the person if they're alive Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I I I know I did this and like probably like just say, I'm sorry. Right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. If I neglected you in this way or or I hurt you in this way and t- 9 times out of 10 they probably don't even remember it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to f- you're not going to regret it anymore. You've you've opened it up to that person. Yeah. And you get to move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I had someone in my life recently do that with a, an event that had happened to them that was eating them up and the other person didn't remember it and I was like it's fine, don't worry about it. Mm. And like she's never going to have to think about that moment again. Mm. Yeah, you've like released her. Yeah. Or or she's released. She's released, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I really, really loved that because it's amazing, maybe even... It is masterful writing because it's describing one of the most deep and yet universally shared emotions, Mm -hmm. I think. And it kind of points to the fact that you kind of never know when the last time you're going to do something is. Yeah. Oh, it's like there's that line, you know eventually it's the last time you pick up your kid. Yeah. Right? You or never like, know that it's going to be the last time. The last time you ever ride a bike. Yeah. The last time you ever go on an airplane. The last like and you never know it when it's happening. It's only like retroactively maybe you think about that kind of stuff and it's it's interesting, but I think it's much deeper when you think about well, what about these memories I have of people, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. And and what was the other thing? So, I love how so it it goes back to the nostalgia stuff. Mm. But I just the I think we we need to really be cognizant of how important our how we treat other people is because mm. they're going to remember it. Right. And like even he talks about how his brother DB takes him to the play mm. and he describes that memory is vivid to him. Is that memory vivid to DB? Well, we don't know, but probably not. But like giving of yourself to others particularly siblings i would say um or or close friends or parents we don't you don't know what's gonna matter mm-hmm. to them yeah and so acting in an aware way that like giving of your love and, and giving it freely and authentically mm-hmm. you don't know that could be a memory that that person holds for the entire rest of their life and you're gonna forget it yeah and i and i loved how just being reminded of he, that just being like picking out memories and how the mind flows and like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I agree. Okay. There's one last kind of big point to be, I guess, chewed on here. And it's the very last bit of the book. I mean, it's the last sentence, it's the last couple sentences. And I feel like the, the end, just the prose, the end of this book is on parallel with like some of the greatest closing or opening lines in all of literature 
at least what it leaves you with, right? Like I remember, I'm thinking of like the boat speed on Great against Gatsby the current, yeah. against the current, or it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Like there's just some lines in literature that are, they stand on their own. And I don't know if exactly because it's kind of disjunct in the, in the pro in the writing style, like the punctuation is like very chopped up. So I don't know if it's exactly the same in this, but I just kind of want to read the last bits of the book here. The last, like basically five or six sentences which ends the catcher in the rye and then we can talk about it because it's so meaningful i think so and again this is in first person narrative holden talking if you want to know the truth i don't know what i think about it i'm sorry i told so many people about it about all i know is i sort of miss everybody i told about even old stradlater oh we were saying that wrong <laughs> even old stradlater and ackley for instance I think I even miss that goddamn Maurice. It's funny. Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. And that just, I get goosebumps reading it now and it tingles. And I wonder if it's something around the fact that I've been thinking about this because I finished the book a couple days ago. I actually still some, I have memories of almost everybody I've spent time with somewhere, right? So it's by this stage of my life, I'm 33. So I've been in contact and associated with thousands of people presumably by this stage and yet everyone i've spent even maybe an evening with an evening or longer i still every now and again something reminds me of them yeah right like it could just be someone i knew for a week in korea but a memory flashes back and i remember something they say and then in a sense it's affecting my life all over again and i think i wonder if what salinger is pointing to here is that Every single person we come across in our lives, even the ones we don't like, are sculpting us in some way. And then when we remember them, we still kind of miss them, even the people we don't like, as he points out with Ackley and Stradlater, because they have made us a little bit the way we are. Well, sometimes I think about this with like, quote unquote, enemies, Mm. right? And actually how intimate a relationship an enemy kind of is, because a true enemy, someone who, you know, actively is working to undermine you and perhaps that you're either defending against or actually also actively working to undermine, they actually have a lot more shaping influence on our (laughs) lives than a lot of the people in our lives. And it it really does strike me that they're, yeah, that you can kind of miss them, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I mean, I think in a book so full of nostalgia, I feel nostalgia for almost everybody. Even people I didn't leave on good terms with. Or even people, like, once you have enough time, I think. With a person. Between. Oh, yeah. yeah. Enough enough time with a person, but it doesn't have to be that long. Like, I have memories of people that I met maybe once, but I spent, like, a whole day with. Yeah. And I still remember, like, something of their personality or the way that they are or their temperament that's like, oh, yeah, interesting. I wonder why this weird thing reminded me of that, you know, because memory is so messed up and and (laughs) hard to control in this way. Yes. Like, things just occur to us and enough time passes and it's all memory, I I do end up just kind of missing even nondescript people because of the little thing that's been implanted in my mental history of them. And like, isn't that cool in a sense that like there's a a kind of whirling chaos to these little sand, pieces of sand Mm -hmm. that are shaping us, right? That Mm -hmm. are, that are slowly eroding parts of us and molding us into whatever we become. Mm -hmm. One thing we didn't talk about, which is very common in the book is, is about sex and relationships and and women. Sure. Yeah. And I, I just, 
thought the, the, my, I guess the only point I would make on that is I remember every single girl I've ever been in love with or, mm-hmm. or, or maybe been in love is the wrong word, been infatuated with sure, and how they shaped me mm-hmm. and like for good and for ill. And it's funny how, I mean, you're right. I, that's a great way to end it. Like this book is about nostalgia. And that's why he ends it the way he does. He had so many negative conversations or interactions throughout most of the book. Like on balance, I'd say it was negative. I mean, obviously there was the ones with the nuns, which he really appreciated. But other than the nuns and then Antolini, which ends poorly, and Phoebe, most of them are on balance on the negative side of the scale. And yet, and yet, he still kind of looks back fondly on all of those interactions yeah, because of the fact that they made an impression on him in some way. And even the negative things he experienced with all of those people throughout the book contributed to the fact that he was able to think about it more positively and substantively later when he was confronted by it through Phoebe. So if he hadn't gone through a lot of those negative experiences, I think some of the feedback Phoebe would have given him would have sounded a lot more hollow because in his heart, he knows she's right. And part of the reason he knows she's right is because the last couple days, he's been going through all of these really vacuous, hollow, mm, surface-level experiences with people. And this makes me think of the beginning where he's kind of standing up there looking over the football game. Right, and yeah. And he's trying to figure out how to say goodbye to a place. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. Who hasn't been through that? Yeah. And... I just, I resonated so authentically with all of that ending. All that that's wrapped up in that ending. Yes, I sometimes just out of nowhere, like a smell or a song or a movie or a quote reminds me of something I did with a person 15 years ago. And I'm like, I wonder what that person's doing now. And yet I realize that person in some manner still is contributing to my life, even if it's nothing more than the fact that I, I have a memory of them, yeah, and they're still in my brain contemporarily. Like, and it can be, obviously, people I've known longer have much stronger <laughs> attachments in that way. But in a, in, yeah, in a sense, you end up missing everybody in I, this yeah, framing, and yeah. I just found that so beautiful. Ah, oh, it is beautiful. From a literary, the moment when a literary flair, like a sentence so encaptures an element of the human condition is probably my favorite part about reading. Oh, 100%. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's and those moments where it's like, a, it's like not a light bulb. I hate that. It's mm. like an explosion of meaning. And I think maybe it's not an accident that the beginning of this book was started off with a kind of a, a, a jab, but a friendly one at David Copperfield, a.k.a. Dickens, <laughs> yeah. is that Dickens is one of the writers who does that better than anyone. Yeah, and I think Salinger is maybe paying a little homage to Dickens with, with the way he ends the book yes. being a way that I would consider maybe Dickens being able to end a book or something yes. like that, right? Yes. And so that was just impactful to me. So I love it. So again, if you enjoy really true fiction, you can find us on all major podcasting apps. If you subscribe, you get notified every time there's a new episode. We would really appreciate a rating and a review if you feel so inclined. You can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and maybe other social media sites soon, but we don't know. We're yeah. we're inept. We have <laughs> I certainly have no social media game, and David has a slightly better social media game than me. But, but I don't we're still working yeah. on yeah, it. Yeah, we're working. We'll get there. And so again, we really appreciate anyone who listens to us ramble about 
cool things like I don't know like to me an episode like Catcher in the Rye I love because I did not see it being this meaningful to us no I did not expect this book to have but what this I kind like is we you know us. we we came into it liking the book but not being sure how much we like the book and I think mm-hmm. after this I have so much more appreciation for why this is a classic just exactly. by talking about it with you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we uh hopefully did a, a not terrible job of connecting the data yes exactly (laughs) so anyway thank you everyone for listening this has been another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason my name is david parker and may the force be with you and with you you